This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. And the police is thinking, you know. My heart beats electrically. My brain confused. Program me. I am complicated. Let me be. We're back, and we already started to talk a little bit about the psychiatry background of some of these like founding fathers of cybernetics, including Gray Walter, who is kind of the subject of Chapter 3. And the subheader here, I think, is pretty evocative, and it'll tell us where we're headed, from electroshock to the psychedelic 60s. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean... He's described. He was described by uh, a historian of science as somebody whose interests range from quote robotics pioneer, home guard explosives expert, wife swapper, TV pundit, experimental drugs user, and skin diver to anarcho syndicalist champion of leucotomy and electroconvulsive therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Yeah, that uh, that that did not stand out to me when I first read it as much as it does right now, including right. <laughs> um wife swapper and yeah. anarcho syndicalist <laughs> champion of leucotomy pretty cool uh, yeah so this yeah, guy he was a founding member of the cool. ratio club and um, i love that it's called the ratio club i can't stop thinking yeah like, yeah his career um, took some he was like born in america but moved to england as like a child so then grew up you know, in England, and I think spent most of his life there. But he got into all kinds of things, but really did start, right, as uh, as a psychiatrist who, like, tinkered as an engineer on his spare time. And that's kind of how he got into the whole world of cybernetics. But then some of the stuff that he worked on, you know, both in Britain and in the U.S., ended up popping up in very interesting ways in the 1960s yeah i mean this was a part that i did not know about at all uh before getting into this i mean i i, I don't know if i had heard of gray walter I, I definitely heard of some of the other guys yeah i'd never but heard of gray walter obviously as you say the the subtitle to the whole chapter really puts it it's like oh okay this is probably going to be uh have some interesting things for us to hit on and it it certainly <laughs> uh comes through so yeah i mean i I thought as as a cyberneticist, he seemed somewhat less interesting uh, to me. A lot of the, the stuff, you know, I don't think there's necessarily in terms of that, his work there, that much to add um, in terms of what's relevant here. But all the stuff about the psychedelic 60s and his relation to the counterculture and how 
he, you know, his studying that story, I think, just shows another one of these threads where the intersection between this world of cybernetics and all of the various aspects of the Cold War counter-revolution, you know, whether that's the 60s or psychiatric electroconvulsive therapy and, you know, shock therapy. Yeah, uh, or right you know and it's just it's kind of of all there so yeah i don't know you want to um you know i guess pickering kind of talks about the his various cybernetic things but then one of the things that pickering is very interested in general is like as we talked about the anti-disciplinariness of this and so all these guys were involved in various like art projects and other things which is, I think, where Gray Walter's life kind of becomes the most interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And his background is, uh, it, it's interesting. He wasn't just uh, working at a mental hospital. I think mean, he worked at the Central Pathological Lab- Laboratory of the Maudsley Mental Hospital in London starting in 1935. Um, curiously noted, uh, with the support of a fellowship from the Rockefeller Foundation. I saw that, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that was after he went to Cambridge. And so he got into the very new field of electroencephalography, EEG, which is, you know, like you said earlier, detecting brainwaves. And even interesting parallel to like the very end of Mind War by Michael Aquino, where he talks about influencing people with like alpha and beta delta waves and stuff. You know, yeah, um, yeah. like on a population scale and how this has popped up in conspiracy discourse before the idea of like alpha waves, beta waves. I think that's even mm-hmm. kind yeah. of where like the term beta sex kitten comes from is the <laughs> idea that like really? when they're kind of hypnotized, was... they go into like beta brainwave. Oh, territory. my God. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I didn't. I always thought it was beta, like, you know, beta male kind yeah, of. Yeah. But no, of I think course, it, it has to. Do no, I think you're traders. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Cuz it's like a submissive kind I, of almost semi I thought semi-hypnotic someone just state. made up the nomenclature of like alpha beta delta assassins or like whatever. Uh but yeah, Oh yeah, maybe. well that might oh. be something slightly different like the delta, the association of delta the, like the, with assassin. Yeah, and yeah. like cuz there was the, MK are you talking delta here about like the green maybe. programming. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Like, this, this is all Fred like, Springmeyer type stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, maybe some other yeah. people talk about Dr. Green, who is like maybe <laughs> Joseph Mengele or some other Nazi, et cetera. Right. But, yeah. There's so, a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Walter Bauer talks about that in Operation Mind Control, too. It, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Dr. Green, I'd like to get into that one day because a uh, very mysterious figure. But yeah, so he studied this early science. And it does say here that. Uh, that some of the people he was uh, work or some other British neurophysiologists at the time had just discovered the alpha rhythm in the brain, you know, cycling mm-hmm. at about uh, 10 cycles per second. And then they did also find like the beta, theta and delta ones as well. So he started, you know, trying to measure and, you know, test for this and, and, uh, created these like frequency analyzers and uh, you know they created equipment for it he i guess maybe one of his biggest discoveries actually no his biggest discovery he i think he did work on epilepsy and found that epileptics show unusual brain waves between fits which was very kind of intriguing but i guess his his biggest discovery was the contingent negative variation the expectancy wave a shift in the electrical mm-hmm. potential of the brain that proceed that precedes the performance of intentional actions. So 
yeah, I guess that was I, you're the, you're the neuroscientist. Wait, I didn't. Yeah, so I don't remember Gray Walter being uh, associated with this. I, I know this term as the readiness potential. I have somebody else's in my head as for who the person is who discovered this, but I mean, right? The idea, right? An EEG is basically just a measuring electromagnetic activity in your brain through the scalp um, with, with with measurements on the scalp. So what you're sensing is electrical activity summed up over thousands or millions of neurons, right? Any signal that's like strong enough that you can read it through the scalp is going to be the activity of, you know, mass action of thousands and thousands of neurons acting in sync. Mm -hmm. And the other aspect to, you know, to keep in mind too, is that the EEG signals are really spread out by the skull. So it's hard to know exactly where in the brain anything really happened that you measure from EEG. So it's, it's, as it gives you very good temporal resolution, but poor spatial resolution. So I'm looking this up, the readiness potential, maybe it's, this is something slightly different, but this, it's a very similar concept, but it's, I mean, the idea is these were studies that were trying to get at the sense of free will. Mm -hmm. And so they hooked people up to EEG systems and recorded from their brain and then asked them to periodically make voluntary movements. Mm -hmm. And they found that there are signals in the brain that not only precede when people actually make the movement, but they precede when those people report to have made the decision to make a movement, right? So like before mm -hmm. they even know, the person knows that they're consciously going to move, there are signals coming up in the brain for that. So it's pre-conscious. It's pre, yeah. exactly. And this was, oh, okay, here I'm seeing I've on the, the before, page, kind of. a very similar event-related potential component had earlier been discovered by British neurophysiologist William Gray Walter in 1962 and published in 1964. It is the contingent negative variation. The CNV also composes two waves. You know, so he had, it's a, it's a very similar thing. It's slightly different from the readiness potential, which is what gets taught more, you know, this, that'll, this is something that'll get taught to you in like any cognitive neuroscience class because it's, it, you know, supposedly it's addressing these questions of free will and stuff, and mm -hmm. it's a good introduction to to EEG. So that readiness potential thing kind of gets taught in like any undergrad level uh, cognitive neuroscience class. So I, I guess, yeah, I, I didn't realize, but Gray Walter had discovered essentially the same thing, but earlier on. Yeah. And I guess, you know, he he made a certain kind of splash by building these robotic tortoises which, you know, sort of uh, Pickering right. kind of says, like represented kind of an early example of cybernetic engineering. And he kind of emphasizes the performative aspect of them as opposed to what we consider like modern day AI that kind of like br like takes in information about its environment and processes it and creates like maps and models and then right. decides like what plan to take while avoiding obstacles. But instead, uh, these uh, functioned a little bit differently. And he says that basically AI robotics, you know, uh, as opposed to Walters, kind of ended up really kind of taking over the academy and also getting a shitload of U.S. military funding. And so then, yeah. like, there's an interesting example here where then people moved very far away from kind of Walter's, you know, conception of his like robot tortoises 
to the point where I think <laughs> in the 1980s there was a or sorry the the late 70s uh, Hans Moravec, a future leader in AI style robotics at Stanford, um, tried tried to basically create a robot with like this new paradigm where it had like a computer inside that was running yeah. and modeling things. But of course, the computer was primitive. And I guess the robot moved so slowly due to the time taken for computation that outdoors, the movement of sun and shadows would confuse its internal representation. <laughs> That's so wild. Yeah, and so he quotes from some some book about this. It says, despite the serious intent of the project, I could not help but feeling disappointed. Gray Walter had been able to get his tortoises to operate autonomously for hours <laughs> on end, moving about and interacting with the dynamically changing world and with each other. His robots were constructed from parts costing a few tens of dollars here at the center of high technology at stanford <laughs> a robot relying on millions of dollars of equipment did not appear to operate nearly as well internally it was doing much more than gray walter's tortoises had ever done it was building accurate three-dimensional models of the world and formulating detailed plans within those models but to an external observer all that internal cogitation was hardly worth it so yeah i guess yeah. um yeah i guess in 1985 brooks uh, built a robot called Alan. Oh, okay, so I see. First, they built that robot with like the serious like computer science <laughs> behind it, and it totally sucked. But then Brooks in 1985 made a robot called Alan that actually did kind of um. It, he says he dispensed with the cognitive box that was the hallmark and center of attention in contemporary robotics in favor of the performative and adaptive engagement with the environment that was the hallmark of Walker's uh tort of Walter's tortoises. And this, of course, put him on the wrong side of the law as far as the academic establishment was concerned. And he has repeatedly told the story of how, during his first scholarly presentation of his new approach, one senior computer scientist whispered to another, why is this young man throwing away his career? <laughs> so they were, like, pressed about it. They really Damn. fucking... Yeah, like, did wanted to go in like this this other kind of militarized direction, but of course that's not to say that some of Walter's r research and interests didn't get into a kind of sus territory later. But they kind of right. it, it kind of went in a different way. It was more through the the EEG stuff that ended up kind of getting uh, appropriated, if you will. And I think it kind of started with like you mentioned uh, the kind of feedback loop machines that he set up eventually. After research, after mm -hmm. doing experiments for a while, he set up some kind of machine that allowed you, let me see, I'm trying to find it here, what exactly it was called, but it was basically like you could see your brain waves kind of on a monitor in real time. In real time, yeah. And you could be kind of exposed to different stimuli or told to like try to focus or like meditate or do something like that right and but also like the the fact of like being aware of your brain waves like actually created i'm trying to see what specifically it was it, it opened up kind of new interesting questions about uh like feedback basically let me yeah. see yeah um, and and just to, as you're looking for this i'll add like this biofeedback is incredibly popular in neuroscience right now Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. in, in all types of fields, but in particular with EEG and fMRI, there are all types of different paradigms to do a lot of different things where you, you can have, for example, someone's brain waves be controlling some parameter within a game that they're playing mm -hmm. so that the state of their brain is changing the, the conditions of the game. 
This is also really big area of focus in terms of like therapeutic treatments. So like in the area of addiction, I know uh, it's pretty common now to, to where there are various different biofeedback trials that will right like present usually kind of like what what you have to do is they'll show you like a meter on a screen and that meter is being derived somehow from some measure inside your brain whether it's up or down or whatever you don't know what that is you you don't have any access to it right but you'll just be watching this thing going up and down and then you'll be tasked with trying to exert some sort of control over it right and in this way you can train people to become sensitive to processes that are happening inside their brain and to actually guide their brain dynamics in a particular way. And and it, people usually won't really understand what it is or how they're doing it. Sometimes they'll start to get strategies as they train, but mostly they're just like looking at this meter that's, that's a readout from something that's going on in their brain and then trying to engage, being engaged in this feedback loop move that meter around and also then be aware of, okay, what is it that I'm doing in my head to do this? Um, and there are a bunch of different ways that you can kind of design these studies. And I think that they're, they're probably, at, uh, we're at the point now where there are various types of clinical trials in different stages of using biofeedback to treat probably mostly psychiatric disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very popular. And, and then the other, like one space that this is also becoming increasingly popular is among video games, right? So I know like Valve and Microsoft are, have both gotten very interested in EEG while people are playing video games and understanding like how the context of games drives your, you know, brain waves and then how you can yeah so i know i know like they're they're definitely like i i certainly don't trust like valve or or microsoft and uh doing that i i saw a thread on twitter that was talking about this this concept just i don't know if this is something you guys have come across before of the world's brain which uh is this idea that like part of all of this these kinds of uh, methods, whether it's from the basic stuff of like social media or then much more kind of suspect stuff of like biofeedback video games, that part of the purpose of this is to integrate human beings into a global computerized uh, uh-huh. you know, network and system, which itself will be, uh, you know, a, a global brain that is powered how, by individuals. How oh popular is the idea it's, of the world brain uh, and how I, I seriously is it is, taken? I think this is something that's uh, that's worth, worth looking into. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it has origins in like theosophy and stuff even, right? Oh it's God. like there, there's, yeah. uh-huh. you know, so I don't really know. But it almost uh, seems like something that like there. Steiner would be describing as like but, evil. <laughs> like right, no, no, I think, but I think it's like very common among like Silicon Valley kind of big wig people all this shit is isn't it like yeah. some version of all of this shit basically is yeah and uh, i mean um yeah that's yeah weird the first person who i heard biofeed heard about biofeedback from was the same person who i first heard about alex jones from because 
he Ow. had to go to biofeedback therapy because he listened to Alex Jones. Jesus. Um, <laughs> that's that's kind of exactly. incredible. Yeah, I mean, he that's, was on that's the cutting a, edge uh, of being into Alex Jones. Uh, that's but incredible. He, he flew a bit too close to the sun and he had to go get biofeedbacked. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess, like, yeah, go one of those, like, sensory deprivation tanks that, like Joe Rogan yeah. goes to and shit. Right. So uh, here's this article by The Verge. Valve co-founder and president Gabe Newell talks about Valve's exploration of brain-computer interfaces for gaming and beyond in a new interview with New Zealand's One News. Although Newell admits the idea of having brain interfaces directly in the computer sounds indistinguishable from science fiction, he says developers would be making a silly mistake if they ignore the area. Says, Newell says that Valve is currently working on open BCI headsets to develop open-source software with the aim of making it easier for developers to understand the signals coming from people's brains. At its most basic, this software could be to understand whether players enjoying the game and adjust the, the experience accordingly. For example, games could turn up the difficulty if they sense a player is getting bored. But Newell's more ambitious ideas involve actually writing signals, to, actually writing signals to people's brains rather than just reading them. And so, you know, um, when, when why, you stop it, like, how why many school shooters evil? is this going to create? Like, well, um, I mean, I think that that's the, the this is the, the thing about like when you when you read an article like this sort of from a very naive standpoint you're like oh this is it's just like cool science fiction stuff and like of course you'd want to be able to like measure people's enjoyment of the game directly while I, in live time like for how modernist is that them. really they true because i don't everything. i almost don't believe that like it was weird like in weiner's book when he's like he was saying oh you know we could never be in danger from machines because we could always just turn them off and he was kind of saying well you know we'd have to know when we would turn them off and like i could see people not understanding that like in the 40s Although still it stretches credulity a little bit like that you couldn't imagine like that because, you know, as he said, he sort of, you know, he referenced this sort of age old folk wisdom about like, you know, technology uh, growing out of control and like the creation, like the creation of intelligence by human beings and uh, non-human mm -hmm. intelligence by human beings and mm -hmm. the sort of uh, primordial kind of uh, anxiety that we have about that. But now, especially like when someone says like, yeah, like what what's wrong? I can't imagine someone being like, yeah, like, I don't see any problem with, like, giving Valve or whomever, like, Apple or something, like, the power to send signals directly to my brain through an interface. Like, that just is a huge red right. flag. So, yeah, I think a lot of people do see it as such. But there are, uh, there are plenty of serious people, you know, that might, it might even be the more serious you are. To me, like, any such are. person is not serious. Well, uh, right. Course. But right. I, I wonder, it's insane. with a lot of these things, like, the people that fancy themselves educated and smart and sophisticated and, oh, I would never be psyoped by a computer or video game reading my, like, right. sending me brainwaves. Like, those people, and those people often have a little bit more juice or influence or, like, support, you know, like, influence over society. Maybe they work at tech companies and blah, blah, blah. So, like, right. in a way, like, those people might, uh, like, because they have this assumption about themselves that they can't get tricked or they can't get psyoped or, you know, something like sometimes I feel like I mean, your average could, person, they might be like, yeah, in a black box kind of way. Like, I don't know what that is, but it sounds sus. Like, whereas somebody who's like sophisticated, you know, might, uh, and has been socialized to not be sussed out by this shit because it, like there, there are a lot of people, I think less so today than maybe 10, 20 years ago, but still a lot of techno optimists out there. Right. You know, yeah, I mean, I could see that there's certain people who would be like, 
uh, almost like in a contrarian way, like saying like, no, there's something wrong with it. Like, of course I trust uh, this to happen. And like, Ugh, you're like a rube or you're just uh, reactionary for not wanting to embrace this technology or whatever. But like, I don't know, like, yeah, even if you're someone who's like, I can never be manipulated, like ads don't work on me or something like that, you know, where you're like, uh, the media can't manipulate me. I can't be manipulated by narratives that I encounter, like from, uh, you know, the media apparatus or anything like that. But giving direct access to your brain is different. Like, Like, it doesn't matter how, like in control of yourself or, or whatever you are at that point. Right. I mean, I think one to the, the first criticism, which is, you know, lots of people have is like the whole cybernetic view here, I think is useful. It's like, where do you think your beliefs come from? Like, where do you think your preferences come from? It's like, all of these things are developed where do correct ideas come over. From? Or, yeah. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, actually we can touch on that a little bit later. Cause I think that that, uh, has some some relevance to to some of the the more kind of modern neuroscience views, but mm-hmm. like right, you your cognitive system is engaged from the moment you're born in a reciprocal exchange with society and the environment, mm-hmm. which yes. uh, cultures and conditions you. There is no such thing as being alive without being conditioned. Right. Yeah. That is that is the, a, a principal characteristic of what it means to be alive. So the the whole view that like, oh, I can't be psyoped by this I or whatever. Have no ideology, right? uh, you know, like, yeah, just, you know, uh, it, it completely misses this entire cybernetic view of what the world is and what you are and how it is that you're shaped by the mutual interaction uh, between yourself and the world and, and the machines in your environment and whatnot. So it's just, you know, the, the whole thing is a little silly to me. You know, it's I think so that anyone would like be receptive to that type of thing or like putting any kind of like, implant or or like even temporary interface like into their brain to like make changes to play a game like right exactly so in this article like right i gotta play my game uh it's proletarian labor uh since certain images of man have been changed over the last 40 years some people are down for that now that's something that I guess, also yeah. I think a lot about, right? Because I think it, it, uh, in the changing of images of man is where they talk about like the desire to give every single person their own hero's journey, yep. right? <laughs> yeah. Which like very clearly that's what RPG video games do, mm-hmm. right? And and yeah, I I would say I, I would if I were not being as careful with my speech, I'd probably say. Uh, that is the purpose of our uh, of RPG video games. But again, right? I mean that not in uh that that's expressly how they were designed but rather that is the function that they fulfill Mm -hmm. um absolutely yeah and and so later in this article it's just a short article by uh the verge uh nobody wants to say oh remember bob or or, sorry let me start a paragraph above despite the possibilities newell admits that brain computer interfaces carry their risks he says that the idea of a bci making someone feel pain is a complicated topic and adds <laughs> that the interfaces will be susceptible yeah. to viruses like other technologies suggesting that they'll need familiar similar safeguards in place nobody wants to say oh remember bob remember when bob got hacked by the russian malware that sucked 
Is he still running around naked through the forest? New equips. People are going to have uh, to have a lot of confidence that these uh, systems are secure and that they don't have long term health risks. And it's like, oh, of course, it's got to be the Russians who hacked it, right? Are the only possible <laughs> yeah, people who hacked I it, can't or be like <laughs> the whole right. yeah. And, but and and that again, that it has to be hacked. That it is not yeah simply, exactly that right? it even like, isn't it's designed. Fucking design. Right. Yeah. There's this story uh, that that um, I may have mentioned this on the previous podcast. I can't remember, but where Facebook was like they had been tasked to sell ads to uh, Las Vegas for the Las Vegas like travel um, uh, department. And so they like set their algorithm about to like figure out how do we optimally target uh, the ads and they were like really successful. They got a bunch of people to buy flights to Vegas. And afterwards, I don't know if this is happening like in Facebook's research center, if this was a researcher separate in a third party who who looked into this, but they wanted to understand it's like, okay, what did the algorithm do to like sell all of these ads for flights to Vegas? And what they found was that it had become sensitive to signals that people were about to enter a manic episode and would then aggressively advertise to them flights to Vegas. Right. So it's people like one of the the principal symptoms of mania is like uh, uh, lots of sending, lots of high impulsivity. Right. So it's like exactly the kind of people who are going to be like, Oh, I should, in, it totally spontaneously see an ad on Facebook and be like, I yeah, can go. This is the Sorcerer's right. Apprentice problem of like, yeah, it's just going to do what is optimal. Like, it doesn't have any ethical, it's like literal minded and right. like and it, and doesn't yeah, have any moral scruples. Right, yeah. right. And like the loss function that they set for their AI algorithm was just maximized sales, you know, of Vegas flights. And so it didn't, it was not trying to optimize anything else. And it yeah. did so by just like totally exploiting and it's kind and, of part of the like the whole problem of like control in a way where like yeah you can even put this also under the rubric of control and that like the level of like control needs to be controlled <laughs> like we yeah like we need to restrain well that like, that was um that's actually like a, a major part of ashby's thinking in his work of it's mm-hmm. like the idea of stabilizing the stabilizer mm-hmm. right and, and, and uh the other thing is i mean he has this um law of requisite variety which basically means that uh you know um the the controller of the system has to be able to enter as many states as the system that is looking to control uh enters Mm -hmm. right so it it has to have there has to be within the the system that is controlling enough variety uh in order to match the variety of the system under control um, right. And that is like one of Ashby's sort of biggest and most influential contributions to cybernetics. So, I mean, I, I think that 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 idea, right, of like the right amount of control, one, it's like it's an important cybernetic idea, but also like from the perspective of like governance and like how should we as a society be engaged with these technologies, I think is also Im- important. Yeah, that, that also it's just like it's giving me big like Karl Popper, Open Society, George Soros kind of vibes in general because it's all about like balancing the perception of an open society with one that right. still requires like it basically capitalism and like a more distributed subterranean kind of almost like cybernetic network of 
like powerful players and institutions that are kind of managing things, but like not in the open so that everyone right. because like part, maintaining the fiction and the, and the sensation of being free is essential to the like homeostatic functioning of the system. Like if right. people don't feel free, the system starts to get dis- destabilized because that when they start to realize they're living in like a psyop world and all this shit is like subtly manipulating them under the guise of, you know, you're an independent actor. You can do whatever you want. Like, thanks right. to Soros. And so, yeah, it's <laughs> thanks like... Thanks to Soros. <laughs> um, you know. Yeah, I mean, Karl Popper came up in that Heinz von Foster book, didn't he? Uh, yeah, he well, he, about, von yeah. Foster was part of the whole, like, Vienna circle, like, very, mm-hmm. when he was very yeah. young and in Vienna. So he, he was influenced by Popper, for sure. Um, yeah, so that, well, that that last thing you said to me, too, there's a, there's a section I'm trying to find now where Ashby talks like exactly about that, how like if if you find that the system is not providing you with opportunity, like to do things that are interesting, then like the the way you should respond is by like breaking things. Here here's this when one is uncomfortable, there is nothing to other to do other than to get restless. Do not suffer in silence. Start knocking the environment about and watch what happens to the discomfort. This is only, uh, this is nothing other than experimenting, forcing an environment to reveal itself. Only by starting a war can one force the revelation of which uh, are friends and which are foes. Such a machine does not solve its problems by thinking just the opposite. It solves them by forcing action. So in war, does one patrol to force the enemy to reveal himself and his characteristics? Which, like, this really makes me think of like like the mass shooter phenomenon right i mean if you think of these people mostly men uh you know who carry out these attacks it's it's like they're when one is uncomfortable there's nothing to do but get restless do not suffer in silence start knocking the environment about you know is that this is and again right that those people they are themselves cybernetic systems who are operating under these principles of feedback and control that's how they you know they, they exist and are also embedded in higher order cybernetic systems that drive them with you know things like elsagate videos in the case of uh um what's his name the the uh, uh, yeah uh oh my god uh nick sandman um, no uh, no 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 it was the the parkland shooter uh yeah nick, yeah I'm or blanking Cruz. Nick Cruz. Nick Cruz. Nick Cruz. like smirking covington catholic this, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly anyway. yeah he just had like Iraq, Iraq war, like body cam footage and like Elsa Gate videos on his YouTube page. Right. Um, and and yeah. so it's like he was you can see how that person was like embedded in this feedback loop of like violence and trauma where he's like watching these. And I don't know any of the details about the rest was like, but presumably, I mean, usually the profile of the of mass shooters is that they like are pretty isolated down and out like don't have a lot of social uh network and cohesion around them yeah it's um recently got adopted by a parent who works at lockheed martin um, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, oh yeah military <laughs> intelligence that, like that, that one is right. oddly yeah. specific um uh-huh yeah but like you know you you can see how they're like in this kind of situation that that ashby is describing here of a cybernetic system that is unsatisfied with its environment and how like the way that you then go about trying to get yourself back into a satisfying equilibrium exchange with the environment is 
to knock the environment about. And then that this yeah. is like sort of a basic principle of how systems of systems uh, interact with each other. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it, it, and then then you get the question of like, all right, if we talk about like mass shootings as like a, you know, domestic gladio and such, which is, you know, popular in our sort of wings of Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, after I don't know, I guess it was the Uvalde shooting. There was a lot of discussion about this and someone's take and forgetting who it was, uh, was essentially like, you know, we don't need to think of this as like every single one of these incidences is like domestic gladio where like it's been spawned by the police and either this guy's an, you know, an asset or he's been, been, you know, nudged and doing yeah, it. It's like, yeah, I think America this was Logo turned... actually who posted oh, really? uh, some, some good tweets about this. You yeah, know, well, I hate, hate moments. <laughs> um, and, and this was one of them, but he said, you know, the entire internet is MK Ultra. Like, that's what he described, yeah. like, you and know, a kid isolated in problem his room. That's the problem of Logo like, where Amer- he's right. yeah, occasionally good posts <laughs> like yeah. amidst, yeah. Right, anyway. but it's like America has turned itself into a mass shooting factory. Yes. Right, and it's like, how, how has that happened? Right. It, that has happened through the institution of cybernetic feedback loops mm-hmm. that amplify rather than dampen these particular sort of Extreme the likelihood of people like states. psychological states that are that are going to put people into a position where they lash out, where they where like they have determined like they're so out of proper metabolic metabolic exchange with the environment mm-hmm. that they have to like go break the environment in order to make things get back and, and make sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, and yeah, I, I just want to say on that tip, cause uh, you know, when I was looking through like the July 4th shooter, like the SoundCloud rapper or whatever, who yep. I think is a great example of kind of the feedback loops because it was, it was extremely eerie how much he was gesturing at the fact that he was an MK mass shooter, like in his social media output, <laughs> right. these videos he was making. Now this ties in back into something in the yeah, book that's very really? interesting. Mm-hmm. That there was one that was like, you know, it was like his monologue where it's like, I feel like I am being destined, like I am being drawn to do this ultimate thing. Like, you know, just kind of weird <laughs> culty shit. But yeah. it's like, but it's spinning this uh, kind of process church type, like modified swastika symbol around in circles. So kind of hypnotic. Yeah, right. And it's also using a lot of strobe light flicker. Now that jumped out. Yeah, that it jumped out at me in this book because going back to Walter, he was one of the pioneers of studying the phenomenon of flicker. I just want to read a little bit here because this pops up like this ends up taking him quite far into the heart of the 60s. But Uh, Pickering says that flicker is a long-standing term of art in experimental psychology, referring to visual effects induced by flickering lights. A spinning top with black and white bands induces perceptions of color, for example. Walter became interested in flicker and incorporated it into his EEG research in 1945 when he came across a new piece of technology, the electronic stroboscope. Staring at the machine through closed eyelids, he reported, I remember vividly the peculiar sensation of lightheadedness I felt at flash rates between 6 and 20 per second, and I thought at once, is this how one feels in a petit mal attack? Of course, this could be how one can induce a petit mal attack. And indeed, when he experimented with a strobe on an epileptic patient, within a few seconds, a typical wave and spike discharge developed as predicted. 
The quotation continues, this was enormously exciting because I think it was the first time that a little theory in EEG research based on empirical observation has actually been confirmed by experiment. So he got really into this and he and his wife experimented uh, on non-epileptic people and epileptics and found that epileptic seizures are not the exclusive property of the clinically epileptic brain. And I guess in a control group of like normal people, like non-epileptic people, three to four percent of these, uh, in three to four, three to four percent of these carefully adjusted flicker evoked responses indistinguishable from those previously regarded as diagnostic of clinical epilepsy. And it turned out that the optimal flicker frequency for the induction of such effects was often hard to find. But then I think at the burden, Harold Shippy Shipton built a feedback apparatus. This, this is what I was looking for earlier. Yeah. In the form of a trigger circuit, the flash being fired by the brain rhythms themselves. So it was syncing the strobe to whatever rate your brain <laughs> waves were firing right. at. Now, get this. With this instrument, the effects of flicker are even more drastic than when the stimulus rate is fixed by the operator. The most significant observation is that in more than 50% of young normal adult subjects, the first exposure to feedback flicker evokes transient paroxysmal discharges of the type seen so often in epileptics. So then he ties this towards, so, you know, he says the details of this would take us too far afield. So let me make a few comments before going back to the 60s. Yeah. He does point out that the flicker is a nice exemplification of his notion of a technology of the self, a material technology for the production of altered states. If you want a paradigmatic example of the technology of the non-modern self, think of flicker. So... He says, feedback flicker staged a vision of the adaptive brain, albeit in a rather horrifying way. The strobe simulated, stimulated the brain. The emergent brain wave stimulated the feedback circuit. The circuit controlled the strobe, which stimulated the brain, and so on around the loop. We could say that the brain explored the performative potential of the material technology in an entirely non-voluntary, non-modern fashion, while the technology explored the space of brain performance. Then it gets to, a little bit later, Walter and his colleagues experimented with strobes, not only on laboratory subjects, but also on themselves, and, quote, we all noticed a peculiar effect, a vivid illusion of moving patterns whenever one closed one's eyes and allowed the flicker to shine through the eyelids. The illusion takes a variety of forms. Usually it is sort of a pulsating check or mosaic, often in bright colors. At certain frequencies, around 10 per second, some subjects see whirling spirals, whirlpools, explosions, Catherine wheels. So it sounds a lot like, a, like maybe a psychedelic trip, right? Right. Yes. And let's see. So then, and didn't Huxley even, or doesn't he bring in Huxley to talk about? He, yeah, he can. Yeah, he says that. You know, yeah, he talked about like some of these descriptions of these vivid, you know, swirling like color into color and comets and shit. And like, what do you make Ooh. of a passage like that? The first word that came into my mind when I first read it was psychedelic, and I immediately thought of some key texts that were required reading in the '60s, especially Aldous Huxley's *The Doors of Perception*, where he talks about his mescaline experiences kind of uh, in that way. And then eventually, you know, Walter's work on Flickr kind of, I guess, uh, covered by John Geiger in a book called Chapel of Extreme Experience, which I guess might be about uh, the 60s and some of this shit. Chapel um, of Extreme Experience, sorry. Yeah, so 
he says that this kind of spawned a whole branch in experimental psychology, this Flickr stuff. Um, and these explorations of Flickr were typically intertwined or entwined with explorations of the effects of psychoactive drugs such as mescaline and LSD. It turned out that the hallucinogenic effects of these drugs are intensified by Flickr and vice versa. And this started to flourish in the 1950s and 1960s. And let's see. Okay, Aldous Huxley did yeah. write about this in Heaven and Hell in 1956 that talks about Flickr, that it was yeah. experienced on its own or in conjunction with LSD in his catalog of technologies of the not uh, of the non-modern self. Okay, this is, the, I think, the passage where we get a real SJ, like, yikes alert. Yeah. Because I didn't mm -hmm. know this before. But at the wildest end of the spectrum, in the late 50s, Flickr came to the attention of the group of writers and artists that centered on William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg, often to be found in Tangiers, where Paul Bowles was a key figure, staying at the Beat Hotel in Paris, or staying at the Beat Hotel in Paris. As I mentioned earlier, the Beat's connection to Walter was textual, chancy, and undisciplined, going via his book, The Living Brain. Burroughs read it and was fascinated to find that consciousness-expanding experience has been produced by Flickr. For the Beat's also, Flickr and drugs ran together. Oh, this is really something. In 1959, when Ginsburg took acid for the first time at the Mental Research Institute in Palo Alto, so under MKUltra, it was in the framework of a typical Gray Walter setup. Quote, Burroughs suggested he did so in concert with a stroboscope. The researchers connected the flicker machine to an EEG so that Ginsburg's own alpha waves would trigger the flashes. I mentioned earlier the strikingly cyborg aspect of such a configuration, and interestingly, Ginsburg experienced it as such. Quote, and this is, uh, his, this is Ginsburg's quote. It was like watching my own inner organism. There was no distinction between inner and outer. Suddenly I got this uncanny sense that I was really no different than all of this mechanical machinery all around me. I began <laughs> yeah. thinking that if I let this go on, something awful would happen. I would be absorbed in the electrical grid of the entire nation. Then I began feeling a slight crackling along the hemispheres of my skull. I felt my soul being sucked out through the light into the wall socket. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. yeah. All these okay. people were like sus lords. Like I think, yeah, he even talks about how like Stafford Beer was like obsessed with like mystical number systems and geometries, right? Yeah, uh, he was into like sacred geometry. Kind yoga. Of stuff. Yeah. And like um he right. had an alter ego like named Wizard Prang. Right. Oh, uh, I, did, I didn't. I missed wow, that. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> yes, yeah. he did. Apparently, he had an alter ego named Wizard Prang who could levitate uh, and such things. This is like where I become like kind of like I mean, as like you know, I'm like sympathetic to. I like I'm very interested in like the intellectual history of pre modernity and like uh, the ideas. Like I think that it's the worst thing ever when people have like no historical consciousness and don't have an awareness of like the thought of people from like uh, even centuries past, like because a lot of the time they intercepted the same problems that we intercept now. Like, and like, it's striking a lot of the time, the compatibility of the like t terms even that, that we use. And, but like this sort of like, it's kind of like the whole, uh, it reminds me a little bit of our, uh, 
episode about um the and i think there is like a fair amount of crossover with this i forget the name of it but that what was that essay like about uh like the sort of the california like, ideology yeah. I, yes yeah. yes yeah, yeah exactly ideology. where it's like yeah. oh the potluck yeah and it's like it's yeah. polynesian it's not even polynesian it's like from right. like yeah and they're like the non-modern it's like non-modern people didn't sit in a room in a sensory deprivation chamber and flicker lights at themselves <laughs> no, but they didn't no, they do didn't. that yeah it's like true. that's not really, actually part of like the non-modern like quote-unquote mystical like a term that like no one in eastern spirituality used they're like oh right. Christ- this is not like christianity it's eastern spirituality like it's mystical no one from the east uh, like ever used the term mystical it's a christian term well if anybody so, was like, ever guilty just, of like, that it was the beats wasn't it? it's annoying um, it's annoying and it's like it's superficial and like then it's like becomes a sort of like it's it's insulting in a way to like uh, like Sufis or even to yes. I don't know practitioners of like traditional like Indian systems of contemplation of the divine or things like that anything like that like or to quote unquote Eastern spirituality in general like it's not about being a sus lord it's not about being part of a machine like that's not. <laughs> You know, to like, be fair, he was afraid know. of becoming a machine. It sounded like it was scary. Yeah, that he I was guess. Going to come. But also, right. I, I mean, also, you know what I, I mean. I, I do want to just point <laughs> you this can out. Feel it. It's it's what because yeah. you know one day we're going to circle around to this guy. He's such a fucking sus lord who is still held up as like an amazing writer, just like so smart and cool. William S. Fucking Burroughs, William <laughs> Seward Burroughs the second. Can we talk for a second about him? Because there's like a Dracularity aspect of him being in. in Introducing all these people to like fucking yeah, come on, Alan. Like, go to the MK Ultra experiment in Palo Alto. Like, let's all flicker ourselves. Like, let me shoot my wife and get away with it. Let me be like a junkie and make it look cool. All this shit. And you know, you know, he's a real. Uh, we're talking William S. Burroughs. I think some people might know. It's like an old line elite like wasp basically and right. not only that though his grandfather william seward burroughs the first founded the burroughs corporation which became famous for creating i think it was called the burroughs adding machine which was like not exact i mean not i may i like guess you could call it an early computer in a way like a very yeah. primitive computer but actually they started moving into digital computer products in the 1950s initially for banking institutions they started buying up other uh like companies in pasadena like electro data and all these other things and uh, like so he you know i mean i guess he either went to yale or harvard i forget but you know this this guy was like at the heart of the whole beat Thing, and then also the 60s, really up into the 90s. He was inf- influencing like Gen Xers, even when he was an old man. But it's just like, it's a strange kind of, I don't know, a Dracularity that he's the grandson of like a guy, like this like wealthy great American fortune dude who created like a predecessor to the computer and the company was still engaging and like building this computer shit, probably with like tons of sus connections. And he's running around like, come on, yeah, let's get freaky and cybernetic. And like, I don't know, it's just, it, it's, a, the, it's a little bit uh, odd because I guess I think he was... Dracularity is like precisely right. And like, there's, it's very interesting. Like I would be interested to see like a cybernetic like reading of the novel Dracula because like a lot of this stuff, like Dracula, like planting his co- coffins like across uh, London to like, Buying you know, the real time, yeah, time out, like, you know, where he's going to travel so that he can like sleep in his native earth and like, yeah, exactly. Like hiring a solicitor to come like plan everything out with him. Like he, 
he is in a way like a, a like a, a cybernetic like kind of being or like control system you know the way he interacts for instance with like swarms of animals or things like that i think like True. the swarming yeah. or autonomous machines like uh, aspect he can send you know, an is, army bot yeah. like twitter bots after you to like attack him if you start it's asking a, questions about Dracula. yeah you know, uh, right, um, william yeah. burrow's cut up method that he's most famous for as well which like, is mentioned has, here i always just like wank like even in my ooh, like like novelist yeah. phase like i got into ginsburg as a teenager i got into like kerouac but i always thought Gin, i always thought like burrows there's a little too much like praise and just like oh he's so amazing like all this shit about him and then it always felt like a little bit of puffery maybe but i just want to read like the end of this like flicker part that burrows is very involved in because i guess he introduced he gave a copy of walters the living brain to the writer and artist brian geisen who of course recognized in walters description of flicker a quasi mystical experience he once had had on a bus induced by sunlight flashing through trees so then they talked with some other people and i guess they developed this thing called the dream machine which i had actually heard before it's very simple it's like if you put a cylinder on a record player and you cut slits in it and you put a right. light bulb in the middle of it and then it spins around it basically creates the similar kind of a strobe effect but without like an expensive strobe light basically so they uh, i think it was the mathematician ian somerville who they introduced like the flicker thing to and he developed this dream machine and they kind of like ran around trying to market it to different companies to like sell it as a product but nobody ultimately uh wanted it and i guess hmm. This is interesting. Timothy Leary, ex-Harvard psychologist and acid guru, was one of the beat suppliers of drugs and learned from them a flicker, which he began to discuss, along with Gray Walter in his own writings. Geisen displayed dream machines as art objects in a series of exhibitions and argued that they marked a break into a new kind of art that should displace all that had gone before. What is art? This is a quote. What is art? What is color? What is vision? These old questions demand new answers when, in the light of the dream machine, one sees all ancient and modern abstract art with eyes closed. Okay, this is like, I'm getting cultural Cold War vibes. Like, yeah. it's all about it. the ancient abstract expressionism. So this is, Geisen was also taken with the idea of the dream machine as a drug-free point of access to transcendental states and had planned to develop it as a commercial proposition, something to replace the television in people's living rooms, but all of his efforts in that direction failed. In the end, the Flickr technology that entered popular culture was not the cheap dream machine, but the high-tech strobe light. As Geiger puts it, quote, by 1968, stroboscopic lights were flashing everywhere. They had been taken up by the drug culture. Ken Kesey featured strobe lights in his acid tests. Del Part Close. Oh, yeah. Del Close is like operating the fucking strobe lights. Oh like God. It all ties together. So, yeah, parties where he served guests, LSD, laced Kool-Aid to the music of the Grateful Dead. Um, Tom Wolfe wrote in the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, quote, the strobe has certain magical properties in the world of acid heads. At certain speeds, stroboscopic lights are so synced in with the pattern of brainwaves that they can throw epileptics into a seizure. Heads discovered that strobes could project <laughs> them into the many of the sensations of an LSD experience without taking LSD. Flicker then was an axis along which Walter's cybernetics played into the distinctive culture of the high 1960s. And I guess he he was happy to take credit. In 1968, he remarked, illusory experiences produced by flashing lights nowadays are used as a standard method of stimulation in some subcultures. I should be paid a royalty because I was the first to describe these effects. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah. So 
Wow. So yeah, that was a uh, the like I mean talk about using it for MK Ultra, the pretty much by bringing it into Ken Kesey's acid test, that's exactly what they were doing. Yeah, right. And and it's just another one of those lines where you can see the aspects of sort of MK Ultra that use that, you know, in the broadest sense when you think about the the totality of the various, you know, counter-revolutionary programs to reform people's thought and to reform people's behavior within society, right? It's like, and each of those things were coming out of this cybernetic milieu from the fifties, you know, at like the Macy's conferences and things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think, right. That this little like history of strobe that we just went through is an interesting example where you like, you can see a direct through line from cybernetics to actual programs of social engineering this doesn't tell us anything about how it is that ken kesey and the grateful dead or whatever came upon strobe and decided it but probably because like with burroughs you know at some point they were exposed to these things together because you know gray walter wrote about them yeah, I guess it was it was Burroughs who was kind of the main node for I guess, you know, allegedly he read The Living Brain and that's what kind of took him off and then he introduced it to everybody and then like a friend of a friend right. introduced it to, you know, Tim Leary and then they spread it. But yeah, it's actually and then also how is it that like how is it that Allen Ginsberg like just so happens to go of all places to go to the hospital at Palo Alto? where like they're using Gray Walter's stuff, but I don't think Gray Walter was actually there. But well, I don't, it didn't seem like it. But another guy, Gregory Bateson was. <laughs> so right. it's like who comes up later in this book. So it's like, how did all these guys find their way to fucking Palo Alto in like well, 1961? Well, made me think right now that Burroughs probably was aware of the Macy's conferences when they were happening. I don't, I mean, I know that the, the things were published. I don't really know how well known it was that these conferences were going on. But, um, you know, I mean, he comes at least from the same social background and social class as the people who are putting this on. And he's interested, you know, as a writer, I mean, and as a beat in the fifties, I mean, to one extent, like the Macy's conferences are like the total antithesis of everything that it is to be a beat because, you know, it's like (laughs) this uptight, like, I mean, I guess they're not on update. The they all, all saw themselves on the surface, right? As like pioneering and innovative, but it's like the man like trying to do the, you know, pay for these conferences to try to figure out how to control society. But you got to figure Burroughs, there's probably some overlap at the very least just in his social networks yeah. with people who were involved in the, the Macy's conferences. There had to be, yeah, because the whole Macy, right. Josiah L. Macy Jr. Um, actually, I mean, they they came from like a, a wealthy like New England like merchant shipping family, but then I think right. uh, it was the guy who that foundation was named after actually made his money uh, working in the oil business connected to, sta- yeah. to Standard Oil, to Standard Oil, right? So mm-hmm. you know, the, so he lots of. Uh, probably lots of overlapping connections there. And I know I've looked into kind of like Burroughs's like family background before. And like, he's one of those guys that's like deep. I mean, he's probably a Seward of like secretary of state, William Seward, you know, right. uh, in the 1860s. Like he's, he's connected probably to multiple families and he went through the Just whole the f- Ivy league prep school 
like Ringer and then right. became he friends in Harvard, World War yeah. II with actually I noticed on his Wikipedia he tried to join the OSS but like got rejected apparently. Oh, wow. William Asperos? Uh, yeah, yeah, William Asperos did. Just the fact that he, this is also Wikipedia, but he attended John Burroughs School in St. Louis. Probably wow. named after John a family Burroughs, probably related. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, where his first published essay, Personal Magnetism, which revolved around telepathic mind control, was printed in the John Burroughs Review in 1929. Jesus. Wait. I, the oh first essay that he ever published was about, like, telepathic mind control and personal magnetism like you know magnetism in the sense of like you know like, animal, yeah, animal magnetism. Yeah. yeah he was also the <laughs> Still, nephew of ivy wild. lee ivy yeah. lee who is an advertising pioneer who was later the rockefeller's personal publicist <laughs> okay so that's like a direct connection to rockefeller family that that gives at least some indication that he probably had some overlap with the people organizing the macy's conferences they right so like I, I wouldn't be surprised although I think Ray Walter's book came out in 1950. So like the book was probably published before any of the Macy's conferences happened, you know, so it's, it's not necessarily that, yeah, but it, it, it easily could be that the reason the living brain came onto William Burroughs's attention is because he knew about the larger cybernetic milieu that was being organized and put together by people in his social class. Mm -hmm. He definitely had to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's safe to assume. <laughs> I, I think yeah. a lot of people have accused him of being kind of like a lifelong, like sort of para CIA kind of, you know, culture war actor kind of guy. Right. Who was allowed to be a dirtbag and like go around the world and just like shoot speed and like be a sicko and like all these <laughs> other things and be involved in literally everything. And then everyone just like praised him for like 40 years. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very above board.
obviously a lot of this stuff like swirled in to the 60s. I mean, you already talked about just kind of going through like the book here. You talked about Ross Ashby. Do we want to talk about Von Forrester for a minute? And yeah, I was thinking maybe it would be worth talking about Stanford beer first and um, like Cyberson and Chile and stuff. And then and then maybe do Von Forrester because Von Forrester segues better into sort of the, the next stuff afterwards i think okay yeah, so yeah you know all right i think we've talked mentioned this guy a number of times stafford beer who i would say is probably the least uh sus personally of the um That's of the really cyberneticians right. yeah i mean I, I can't say i don't know the, the the background of all of them but in terms of like stafford beer at least you have a sense pretty concretely from his work and how he's engaged at like his politics are pretty good. Like he's like, for as much as he's into like Eastern esotericism and spirituality and whatnot, it's like, Mm -hmm. and the the main reason I say that, right. is because Stafford beer was um, the consultant who was hired by the Allende government in Chile Mm -hmm. to direct their project Cybersyn, which was, you know, the program that Allende attempted to institute to uh, nationalize the industry within Chile and to put it under a cybernetic system of state management. Yeah. Um, and so Stafford beer, he, he started his career. He got into cybernetics from like management. He was a management consultant, or, I mean, I don't think that even really existed at the time of but he, he worked for United steel yeah. in Britain and his role was like helping make factories run efficiently for them. And he got into cybernetics through that. And he, I think, found the work of Warren McCullough, who was um, the first, the president of the first um, or chairman or whatever of the first Macy's conference and was um, an MIT engineer and he, and, and neurophysiologist. And so Beer contacted McCullough and they started a, a relationship. And then McCullough kind of became his mentor. And he, you know, developed his his main areas of cybernetics, or it's called management cybernetics. And he was really interested in understanding how economic firms operate. And his his most famous uh, sort of magnum opus book is called Brain of the Firm. Yeah. Um, and he puts forward in that this um, thing called the viable systems model, which is incredibly complicated. And that, and uh, you know, I, I don't I haven't spent a lot of time trying to understand it myself. But essentially, it's a model to say, what are viable systems? That are, that is, systems that are capable of maintaining themselves over time. So I have a little uh, a quote here. This is from um, a talk that Beer gave called What is Cybernetics? And in this, again, he says, uh, in this, ultra-stability is the key to viable performance. I have defined a viable system as a system that is self-sustaining or survival-worthy in just the way that a human being is viable when it can survive outside the womb. It is not totally independent, nothing in this world ever is, but it is autonomous within the limits that are defined by its own physiology. The model of any viable system is the basis for my major work in industry, transportation, in education, in health, and in every other system that seeks to survive. Three of my books are devoted to explaining the detailed theory of viability, and you will hardly expect me to summarize them in a short address. But speed of response is a major clue. In fact, we should be directing such large systems of the economy in real time. The second clue I offer concerns recursivity. If you can envision a model of viability that is universal, 
then it will be effectively recursive. It will apply to whole industries, to individual firms. It will apply to large towns and to small villages. Putting together the issues, the issue of real time and of recursivity, we may conceive of a model in which continuous sampling recognizes incipient change before it occurs and is therefore subject to modification. So as I said earlier, uh, we do not try to build massive databases, but selective and immediate responses. This can, in effect, break the time barrier, pushing forward into likely futures. So right here, here he's talking about his viable systems model and, and a little bit about the work that they did in Chile. There's a good, it's an okay article, I have some uh, critiques on it in the New Yorker called uh, The Planning Machine that talks a bit about Stafford Beer and Project Cybersyn you know, if people want to read about it. And there's, I mean, the, the the section on Stafford Beer and the cybernetic brain has a ton on this too, but there are also some books that have been written about Cybersyn. Yeah, it's, um, been, it's been kind of a thing that's like been focused on because it does stand out as like this singular, very fascinating sort of economic experiment that, you yeah. know, the only, like the first democratically elected socialist in South America, like put to work under very tough, you know, circumstances with not a lot of resources. And, right. you know, it, it, it charted this kind of, I, it, I feel like it, maybe it represents to people kind of does to me a kind of alternative vision of how like cybernetics could have developed or something like the internet could have developed over the last like 50 years yes. if the if a system like this had been kind of rolled out and you know allowed to continue then right because there's no reason i feel like with the technology we have today that you could not set up something like cybersyn like maybe it was challenging in 1972 but today right. you absolutely could do it which gets back i think to the question of ontology because it's like ontologically unthinkable in the West or in like the broader world economy now that you could well, ever do like you'd be totalitarianism. Like, you know, right. it, it, people would totally um, fucking lose their shit. Yeah. There's this book that's become popular on the left called, um, the people's Republic of Walmart by, mm. uh, Lee Phillips and Noah, somebody I want to say, I'm forgetting that the second author's name. And the, the thesis there is essentially that like Walmart and Amazon through their like, integrate vertically integrated supply chains have essentially like solved the <laughs> socialist planning problems you're right it's like hayek really critiqued socialism on the like uh it's not possible for a central planner to yeah. plan and implement all these things and yeah. so and that like the market is this like natural computational system which is able to integrate all these things and that's how the invisible hand works blah blah right and, and like mm -hmm. largely that explanation is understood in the west to have been correct people's republic of walmart book i mean essentially is kind of saying what you're saying is like walmart and amazon have developed all of these technologies for managing their supply chains and it's like just in time supply chain management obviously like this was written before covid and uh people have become a lot more suspicious or skeptical but also just more knowledgeable about just-in-time supply chain stuff since COVID, yeah. but right with that, that they essentially say that like, you know, the the technologies that Amazon and Walmart have done for centrally planning their internal systems are essentially socialist technologies. I have a, a decent amount of problems with the the framing from that book, and I I have seen some people say some people critique some of the authors on like where some of their funding sources are coming from and that you know, maybe they're a little <laughs> sus and stuff. So no, they're just you know, haters. I, I don't know. Stopping a hater, much, right, but uh, there's, it's an interesting book. Yeah, and, no, um, like 
and it does talk about Cyberson, right? But Cyberson is like mostly talked about as like, as you said, like a precursor to the internet, mm -hmm. but really it was, it was something very different. And so Stafford beer, right. In addressing those problems addressed by Hayek, here's a little quote. Let me see from the, this, this, uh, the planning machine article, right. Mm -hmm. Yet central planning had been powerfully criticized for being unresponsive to shifting realities, notably the free market thinker, Frederick Hayek, the efforts of socialist planners, he argued, were bound to fail because they could not do what the free market's price system could aggregate the poorly codified knowledge that implicitly guides behavior of the market uh, participants. Beer and Hayek knew each other, as Beer noted in his diary. Hayek even complimented him on his vision for the cybernetic factory after Beer presented it at a 1960 conference in Illinois. Uh, Hayek, too, ended up in Chile advising Augusto Pinochet. Yeah, slightly, <laughs> slightly different uh, sides of the coin there. Um, yeah, right? But they never agreed about planning. Beer believed that technology could help integrate the workers' informal knowledge in the national planning process while uh, lessen the information overload. Wait, right? did, he, uh, did Beer mm -hmm. also advise Pinochet? No, no, Beer uh, no, advised, he advised Allende. 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 Oh, Allende. And, and he was out of the country when the coup happened. Which is its own. Who would have to look into why exactly? And you know, was was he tipped off or something? But like, he probably would have been arrested. And other members of Allende's uh, cabinet and stuff were arrested and either you know killed or, or imprisoned for a long time. Mm. But Beer basically, right? He he talks about how recursivity is really important for the viable system. And so he had the way he had designed this Cybersyn system was essentially that like each level would be recursive. So the, the factory would have its own sort of control system that would monitor the various inputs and outputs of the factory and the labor conditions and make sure that it could meet whatever its performance targets were. And that recursive system within the factory would be communicating with uh, a regionally local recursive system that had its own management suite. There, there is this idea. This is actually quite interesting. So he, they built these control centers. And there, there are pictures of the one control center that they actually built in Santiago, where very they famous. were like managing proper. It's yeah. a very, very famous pictures. But let me find the the section in here about its design and its size. Okay, uh, at the center of Project Cybersyn for syner uh, cybernetic synergy was the operations room, where uh, cybernetically sounded decisions about the economy were to be made. Those seated in the op room would review critical highlights, helpfully summarized with up and down arrows from real-time feed in the fact uh, of factory data and from around the country. The prototype op room was built in downtown Santiago in the interior courtyard of a building occupied by the National Telecom Company. It was a hexagonal space, 33 feet in diameter, Wait. Ac accommodating seven white fiberglass swivel chairs and an orange cushions and on the walls, futuristic screens. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Beard yeah. Beer definitely was into like all this like sacred geometry kind of stuff. You know, like I, I tend to not be particularly sussed out by beer because like, I, I mean, his work on, on Project Cybersyn and various other writings, like, I, I mean, obviously... He wasn't a Marxist and he was like quite rich uh, from his like management consulting businesses. Yeah. But he seems to have a pretty legitimate sort of general positive outlook. And he thought that cybernetics should be used to make the world, you know, better and more holistic and more inclusive and to give people more 
freedoms. Um, yeah, he called so it the, I, he, not, I, I think he even called, I don't know if it was particularly Cybersyn or like similar models, He ba but he basically called it the Liberty Machine at one yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, but I think not necessarily in like a right-wing libertarian kind of liberty. No, like it's, something it's in a very liberate sort of Marxist sense. Right, yeah. and it's, it's that like, yeah, having this machine navigate society for people is liberating because it it takes all of these burdens off of them i mean i think so yeah i talked about there's this this talk that stafford beer gave in october 2001 where he uh talks about some of these things that i think is very relevant so in his view this is, is quite interesting right he sees the greatest success that cyberson ever achieved was in breaking the strike the trucker strike that the CIA had fomented in order to try to mm -hmm. undermine Allende's government. Oh yeah. So he's got this section in in this talks. Um, where he says the most vivid illustration of this is in my own experience happened in Chile in October 1972. A, f a powerful attempt to overthrow the government was made by the political opposition with the help of the CIA. Small businesses in the form of the Gremios were financed to mount a blockade. The idea was to take ordinary requirements of people, food, cigarettes, petrol, love that he included cigarettes there, uh, out of circulation and blame the government. We already had the, a communication center in working order, although nothing specific had been designed to regulate distribution. But evidently that was required, and evidently a number of ministers and key staffs were involved. We had only one computer for everything we were doing. All other communication had to work through Telex, a network that had already been appropriated, maybe from ITT or someone who probably built yep. the uh, <laughs> Telex network in Chile. Yeah. Uh, eight teams were self-organized, and within 24 hours, uh, messages were flowing nonstop around the clock at the rate of 2,000 Telexes a day. Oh, oh boy. Um, ministers slept on the floor and in the middle of the hot, uh, mid and in the middle of the hubbub. Sorry, I almost said hot tub there. <laughs> um, I don't think they had a hot tub in the operations room. No, we're not at Esalen. No, no this demonstration of the redundancy of potential command and action and in real time truly convinced many people in the government who had hitherto been merely intellectually acquiescent in the approach. Something as dramatic as this, perhaps, is needed to break the paradigm. One senior minister said flatly that the government would have collapsed without the cybernetic tools available to it. As it was, President Allende was allowed to live for another year. Sadly, the absence in the absence of paradigm shift, not to mention the vested interests of all concerned in operating the standard systems of management, meant that the Chilean operation had, uh, has never been repeated. Bits and pieces of the holistic approach have been adopted in various other countries, but by definition, they lack cohesion. The whole story is uh, crisply explained in the last five chapters of my book, Brain of the Firm. Right. So he is he, very interestingly in this weird counterintuitive way. Right. I mean, he saw the greatest success of what Cyberson actually achieved was in breaking a strike, a strike that was, you know, being used by foreign you know multinational corporations and and the cia to try to undermine allende's government mm -hmm. um which i thought is a very a you know kind of weirdly syn synchronicity or or um sort of interesting feedback loop of itself yeah yeah and it's interesting that it, like it it helped them and then like decades later like the internet which is, you know, sort of, I don't know, a distant cousin of Cyprus and maybe you right. could say uh, is used to like overthrow governments like and basically like smash the them and yeah. use like cybernetic techniques to like overwhelm 
you know, people the U.S. government doesn't like, and that's uh, yeah. wild. By the way, you know that they ran Cybersyn. They only had two computers in the entire country, which is why they had to use all these telex machines. Right. But the two computers they had were an IBM 36050 machine and a Burroughs 3500 machine. <laughs> so, oh, like, my God. They were using wow. a Burroughs family computer uh, to run yeah. Cybersyn. That so, is crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so later on in this talk... Stafford Beer, like I said, this was given in, in October 20, uh, 2001. And so later on in this talk, he talks about 9-11 from a cybernetic perspective, which I yeah, think is, is yeah. uh, uh, nice here. Yeah. And, and you know, we we haven't maybe talked that explicitly yeah, about like... with the other 9-11. Yeah. What is... Uh, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Like, what is the importance of all this for like parapolitics and conspiracy theory and things like that? And I think that this quote does a useful job of sort of putting that in context. So I'll read from this. With the complete range of cybernetic discoveries at hand, it is always possible to analyze the situation from the point of view of its regulatory phenomena. According to the cybernetician, the purpose of a system is what it does. This is a basic dictum. It stands for a bald fact, fact, which makes a better starting point in seeking understanding than the familiar attributions of good intentions prejudices about expectations, moral judgments, or sheer ignorance of circumstance. just want to pause there for a second, right? And I think this is something people may have seen me post this on Twitter before, because I think that this is a useful thing that people need to kind of uh, wave, you know, think about the world. But, right, it's like the purpose of a system is what it does. This is a basic dictum. You know, is is saying there that, like, you don't have to, like when you're thinking about the purpose of things, right? It's like, you don't have to worry yourself with the design intentions of whoever built it because those ultimately will always be unavailable to you, right? But instead look at its input output relationships. How do people perform with this thing, whatever it is that you're talking about in the world and, yeah. and what function does it have on the world? And that is its purpose. Like you yeah. don't need to think about some sort of I intentional design or whatever because regardless of what someone intends something to do what it actually does is the thing that matters absolutely i think and that's I think even that that, a more that's even a more like materialist way i think of looking at it than maybe some of yeah. the serious people that you know would earn you for even talking about 9-11 but right you know it's like what are people actually doing what, it, what that you can observe like these right. are actual well, data points you can do and yeah i got in a sort of argument on twitter one time with a guy who was is sort of a like reactionary marxist kind of view <laughs> where he was uh -huh. uh, like the, the kind of people people don't really talk about this that much anymore but two years ago or so there was lots of complaint about class reductionists yeah, uh, yeah. And they still were, exist, but now they like have course. different terminology for them. It's right like, now they're right. all about being patriotic. Yeah. That's Pat, the Pat same Sox. fucking thing. Yeah, yeah, the right. Pat Sox, it, yes. you're, you're right. You're name. right that it is just that it is just and the people who are defending right class reductionism, but there's talking about uh, systemic racism, right? Uh -huh. And like in my uh, the argument, this is you know a lot of people were were talking. I I, I think this anyway, uh, right? I mean the argument is basically like. It is plainly obvious that systemic racism exists because systems with racist outcomes exist. It's like the yeah. criminal the criminal justice system is producing racist outcomes. That means it's racist, right? And like all these people, they were quoting a ton of I want to say Walter Rodney, but maybe that's wrong. <laughs> uh, that feels wrong at us and being like, no, like like there is this essay that's like the the um the problem with looking at disparities or whatever, but 
you know, the people just like couldn't understand that, like, when we say that this is racist, like, we're not saying that, like, the people involved have racial prejudice in their head mm-hmm. consciously when they're making those decisions. Like, that, that's not, that's plainly, obviously not what is meant by this, right? But it is just that the output of the system literally has racial disparity in it in a way, you know, that it shouldn't. Like, that is evidence offhand that systemic racism exists because that's how systems operate right it's like you don't have to put some try to infer some intentionality to the system it just has input and output relationships that you can look at and map and understand what function does the system do well that is the system's purpose yeah for sure and even on the flip side i feel like you know it's like on one side maybe you have like class reductionists that are like just don't talk about it at all like there's no systemic racism or right-wing people say that but then liberals on the other side want to make it all about how the problem is there individual people within these institutions who have bad thoughts and bad ideas and you need to like thought reform them one by one and then all these institutions will magically change when yeah it's like (laughs) no this is like when it's a structural problem that's not sufficient basically right to actually change it, which right. we've seen again and, and again, like how many like woke yeah. politicians who like oh, are totally not racist have we elected, and the system remains so, right. Hmm. And and I think right the, again from the cybernetic perspective, it's like the system has logics of its own, which come from the design of the system. And design again, not something intentional there, but just the actual sort of structure that that this is uh, that these things are related with, and the the modes of input and output that each of the systems which make up the larger system have for themselves right and i think that this is um let's let me actually continue with this this quote from from the beer talk because there's there's a lot that that's useful here right yeah so it says last month the tragic events in new york as cybernetically interpreted look quite different from the interpretation supplied by world leaders and therefore the strategies pursued are quite mistaken in cybernetic eyes In the first place, we heard the usual description from world leaders of an outrage perceived as mindless, senseless, and cowardly. We should always react with dismay at these prior judgments because they simply mean that the speaker has no idea what is really happening or why. The real (laughs) reasons are not difficult to comprehend on a systemic basis, although they are deeply offensive to the United States. In the Twin Towers, a bastion and symbol of international dominance has been overthrown. This dominance is regarded by millions, especially in the third world, as wielding an indefensible use of economic, cultural, and political power. In many countries, people have seen their compatriots slaughtered with U.S. bombs and starved by U.S. blockades. Their legitimate and democratic governments have been overthrown and replaced by U.S. puppets who are also despots, ruling by terror and torture. The West has made little attempt to understand that point of view because their dogma has no systemic foundation. I'm not sure I agree with that last part. I think that they probably do have systemic foundation in terms of the dogmas of imperialism. It's They're just, just a sus, like fake ass. Yeah, is evil. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's evil. It just it justifies imperialism and colonialism. It's just not, you know, a good yeah. step. As he says earlier, like they are they are embarrassing to the united states if you were to admit them yeah, um and yeah. you know we in a free democratic country like your average citizen it's just totally incongruous with their conception of the country but continuing 
When it comes to modus operandi, the cybernetician knows that information is power if properly deployed. It seems that 50 or 60 countries are involved in the networks that mobilize this informational power in September. That, I think, is also interesting, right? It's very similar to, I think, Dimitri, it was you who said near 9-11. People are like, 9-11 takes a village. You know, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. right? He, there is an insight here. I, I don't think in his head he imagines that the 50 or 60 countries are all being coordinated by uh, the United States. But, um, you know, he, he's capturing something that's really true about how something like 9-11 has to be this incredibly complex and complicated thing. And it's not coming out of just some simple state actors or yes. conflict between states or something I've like always, that. Right? I think guys. this is relevant to something I've always said about like the predictive, like I saw you, uh, Dimitri, just like recently sharing on, or I think you liked on Twitter, like someone's tweet of like the, uh, the coup album cover of them, like uh, yeah. clacking their drums yeah. together and destroying the twin towers. <laughs> and people will be like, Oh my God. Like it was like, what? Like Dick Cheney was like the coup, like predictively program everyone like with your album cover. Like, well, it was supposed right. to be released no, on nine because... 11. That was the weird thing about it. Yeah. Oh, it, like, it got um, delayed. I think I forget what happened, but yeah, yeah. It was yeah. Something like that. Uh, but, but no, well, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's my, not like, like Dick Cheney ordered that, like, boots Riley. The, the desire to see the Twin Towers destroyed is like a natural, like the Twin Towers and their destruction is kind of like built into not only like the architectural, like aesthetic qualities of the building, as I've said before, but definitely into like what they symbolized globally. Yeah. They like, almost were you know, built that, to be knocked down in some yeah. kind of fantastic way. That's why, I mean, we well, we went to Bob Carey, Senator Bob Carey who's on the 9-11 commission, like yeah. made that cryptic comment, like, look, it's a 30-year plot. Like, you know, like, which sounds yeah. like that's from 1971 when they were built to 2001. And, you know, perhaps I've been more interested in the idea lately that not taking any sides on, you know, uh, controlled demo discourse, but if they, if like people who built that building knew if you flew a plane into it, it would cause a structure defect that would make it pancake on itself like that right. i mean you can you imagine know? a cybernetic design of the building right yeah. the whole idea of cybernetics is about how do you make systems stable to perturbations well that that science also can tell you how you make systems unstable to perturbations yeah right i mean the, the idea right a, a building that can withstand an earthquake is a type of multi-stable system because it is able to withstand perturbations that are that are you know might otherwise uh, uh, destroy it. It has these kinds of redundancies built in, right? There certainly is a kind of cybernetics, and I know nothing about architecture, like you know civil engineering or things like that. So you know, Me but <laughs> but you can understand how with a cybernetic point of view of the building itself, yeah, you could imagine designing a system that ha that uh, and and also that's that is what is done in demolition right it's like you you in in when you do make a building pancake itself like you have to insert breaks into the system in such a way that the particular um right it's existing in a particular dynamic regime that is the building is standing mm -hmm. and you need to move it to a very specific different dynamic regime mm -hmm. in which it's collapsed totally on its feet yeah. And there are all these ways to get it from the completed regime to the fallen apart regime that do not achieve the goals of a controlled demolition, which is that it totally collapses and doesn't destroy anything else around it. Right. So it's like yeah. demolition in itself is a cybernetic enterprise where you have to engage with the system of the building 
in a way that controls its dynamics very specifically. Yeah, you have to control um, like a homeostasis of destruction so that it just goes, whoosh, right. you know? Yeah. And because otherwise, I feel like for any people that might be plotting this for 30 years, having like half the building break off and fall on 10 other skyscrapers would be not an optimal plan, like for a right. variety of yeah. reasons, you know? Especially because those people probably owned all of that. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want to destroy all your other real estate. You want to sacrifice the one thing which is built so, except, yeah, which is the, such the a symbol building. of like US imperialism and financial capital and, uh, and is completely fucking ugly and looks precarious like it should be not and has been right. knocked down in 20 disaster movies already throughout the 90s and then when you look at the networks that swirl around 9-11 from the kind of the Saudi connections the Israeli connections uh, the Liberian connections which I'll be talking about in not too long from now and just like all the Iran-Contra type people and just like the the vastness of these networks it feels incredibly cybernetic like the whatever yeah plot there uh, there was or whatever occurred felt like it had these deep ripples and interlocks and other things that are like highly highly complex almost to the level of what did beer say like the three things that are an extremely complex system exceedingly human brain um, state and company or like human brain economy society yeah yeah, yeah, something like that and a and a corporation are these you know highly complex systems so yeah, I don't know. Like that's uh, it's it's interesting that he's making this distinction like right after nine eleven, right? So yeah, let me let me continue uh, with this quote. Right when it comes to the modus operandi, cyber officials know that information is uh, is power if properly deployed. It seems that fifty or sixty countries are involved in the networks that mobilize the informational power in September. It is not simply a question of having a database. The cybernetician knows that resources can be amplified through the process he calls intrinsic control. A large assailant charging a judo adept finds himself thrown over the adept's shoulder and crashing into a corner, destroyed by his own strength. This amplification of system turned the hijacked planes into guided missiles. And maybe there was also a guided missile, but uh, who knows? (laughs) Um, I'm not approving this heinous crime, merely trying to understand it with cybernetic insight. I see nothing here that is either meaningless or mindless. On the contrary, I see a stroke of strategic brilliance, backed by ingenious tactics and supported by thoroughgoing logistics. As to the men who sacrificed themselves in the endeavor, in other circumstances, they would not be called cowardly, but heroic. The purpose of a system is what it does. That was the cybernetic dictum. What the system inaugurated in 9-11 has actually done is to provide retaliation against against yet another poor country, Afghanistan, on the principle that might is right. In doing so, the United States may well seem to have abandoned the principles of justice that it has proclaimed. The outcome, which was predictable, is that opponents of the United States are in a position to proclaim a jihad, a holy war. It is the safest to assume that this was the objective from the beginning. (laughs) Now, again, I mean, I think he's saying that, and then the purpose of the system is what it does. Mm-hmm. I think he's, say, he's saying it is safe to assume this was the objective from the beginning, you know, assuming that like Osama bin Laden was the guy planning it and not Dick Cheney. I know, but, but also, it, I like, think it still applies. Even if you think it is Dick Cheney, it, it still completely applies. I mean, I think that this, again, it's what, like fascinating here, right? He's trying to understand this, he says at the beginning, right? It is always possible to analyze the situation from the point of view of its regulatory phenomenon, right? It's like, what are the regulatory phenomena that contributed to 9-11 well well obviously like there's the faa 
and uh, all Dr. the Mike, you know, Dr. Mike Shua and Alex Station, the CIA, <laughs> right, the FBI, right on, yeah, you know, yeah. ex- the, the Alex Station was expressly set up to be a regulatory system to regulate the cybernetic interaction between Al Qaeda and Islamic terror and whatever, and the West mm-hmm. yep. in a way that like managed that that exchange between these two uh, parts in a way that benefited the U.S. imperial system. Mm. Now, you can say that, well, September 11th didn't benefit the U.S. imperial system because they got attacked. But then on the other side, you can look up, yeah, but then they also got the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the Patriot Act, the torture memos, the memos for, you know, suspending habeas corpus and uh, indefinite The purpose of the system is what it does. Drone wars. Exactly. The purpose of the system is what it does. It's like there's no reason... To not say that, like, the Patriot Act was the purpose of 9-11. It was already written. And, and, yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly. It was, I think it that's was like already what, written. I think, yeah, I think that I see your point. I think it's, like, very astute is that, like, yeah, in a way it almost doesn't matter who the direct agent of it was if you look at it on, like, a systemic level. From a level. level. Because mm-hmm. even right. though this, yeah, this article is taking from the uh, perspective that there was not actually, like, a conspiracy on the part of the U.S. government, like, he, like if you excise that part, the conclusions are going to be basically the same. Even, like, to the point of, like, the a- analogies between, like, the guided missiles and the planes and things like that. <laughs> right. like, You're saying that uh, it was, like, fantastic, like, the logistical planning of this operation was, like, superb and, like, flawless. And it's, like, you mean, like, the 20 guys, the 19 guys with, like, box cutter knives that, like like it seems kind of improbably like took over four planes and like perfectly flew them into like these targets uh, you know when i read that when i see like their excellent you know impeccable logistics i'm thinking of some other actors that were engaging in like you know some real professional type shit to pull this and off I, well i think that the key thing is like the idea of 911 as a function of the like american imperial system like even if yeah. It were like even if we're talking about like the official narrative of 9/11, then it's still like the imperial like, system was yearning. Yeah, you feel yeah. like the imperial system was yearning for the negative feedback of like 9/11 exactly. happening. And in it fact, like calling out it. to it in Please like these sort of artistic impressions, like beckoning right. to it. Like a Venus flytrap. M- memeing like, it. You know, like like yeah. memeing it into it. Like, in please Sparatu. watch our movies yeah. and get inspired to do 9-11. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, like, I think, it goes, saying, I think yeah, it goes deeper the, than that, but I think that is true. Like that, that is true even if it was not yes. a U.S. conspiracy, blah, blah, the, blah. There was a calling out to like, we almost want to, we have nothing to do. We're restless, right? That was what it was after the Cold War, right? We were yeah, restless yeah. and there's nothing to do. So we wanted to go out and break right, something. The US, yes, and yeah, I think that that US, was, whether or not it's the only aspect i think that that very much was an aspect like the of of 9-11 that right. yeah they're like this that sentiment like was very much real and it was something that was a factor in the realization of 9-11 whatever like one's narrative for it is i don't think just like how can, everybody oh, yeah. in a, like any position of power in the united states in 1963 like wanted fucking kennedy to be dead and like it's <laughs> right. you know it's yeah. a different question of like maybe who was directly involved in it and who was like maybe let it happen and who kind of just quietly was like good you know but basically like you know everyone from like U.S. Steel to like 
you know, the Texas oil guys to like the pro-Israel lobby to the mafia to the CIA, like everybody fucking hated him. And like, it's like the system was screaming out for like something to be done. And then voila, it was done. This is also, I mean, I think, right, cybernetics gives us a framework then to sort of understand the relationship between conspiracism and like Marxism or, 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 you know, historical materialism, right? I mean, there, there were these arguments that various of us got in with the, you know, people on Twitter about, you know, what the value of doing conspiracy thing. theory. Yeah. Huh? Of like, or was it the D Bessner thing or was it something? There's that. I mean, I, I had a couple of long discussions mall. with, um, yeah. with, uh, as a worker. Um, oh yeah. yeah another where, amazing poster. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's all these people who just want to say is like, no, like conspiracies, theory is just not important like what is happening is like these are the you know laws of motion of capital it drives you know the yeah. the, the system right. and, and so like that's that's a view of like a broader societal economic system of political economy and then if you understand that like the the, the political economy is itself a system and therefore has its own internal regulatory structures which guide the dynamics of that system, then like the critique of political economy is looking at the regulatory phenomenon at that level, at a broader systems level, right? But again, like what we are, are like, and what society is, is systems embedded with systems. It is a multi-scale set of dynamical systems. Yeah. And at a different level of explanation, those laws of motion of you know the 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 movement of um flows of capital and whatnot which guide the dynamics of the large-scale political economy like they the rubber meets the road somewhere right and like that happens at some point with people yeah right and 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 people who are engaged in actual social formations i mean this is the thing that's like always been insane to me about like the anti-conspiracism marxism it's like Marx is all about, I also want to turn back. I mean, this is also like where materialism for me, like why I would describe myself as a materialist, right? Is like, because from the cybernetic view, right? Again, the brain is not about representing a world out there that's knowable. It's about performance. It is about doing things in the world so that if I get cold, I can warm myself up. If I get hungry, I can get myself food, right? Because if I don't do that, then the essential variables inside my body are going to are going to go outside of a range in which I keep living right so I am compelled by my own physiology when I get hungry to go out and search for food mm-hmm. and so the right is like cognition and the brain has always been oriented first towards action not towards knowledge not towards representing a world outside right and it's like this to me is like why I am a, a materialist is like, I, yeah. I understand the argument from Marx, but like there's a line in Marx somewhere that's like, man is conditioned mm-hmm. by the way he acts in the world. Yeah. Like his ideas are not conditioned. Like his ideas do not condition his action, but his action conditions his ideas. And that is the, the same as the cybernetic, you know, dictum about, you know, what systems are is about, operational performance yeah that's a he Um, also said you know the point of philosophy is not merely to describe the world but to change it which again change it right is action 
exactly. over just like sitting around and like, you know, scratching your chin and going like, mm, it's the structural maw of capitalism. And like, right. Therefore, conspiracies can't exist. If I, like that, that means that like, if anything, that validates the conspiracies exist. The fact that right. like this capitalist structure exists how, because how it's based on conspiracy. How is the class reproducing itself? Yeah. Oh, they're all going to Yale and Princeton and Harvard and they're in the same secret societies and then they go get themselves jobs together and then when they get hired as politicians, they hire those guys that they went to college with. It's like these are – this is the actual – material relation of real living human beings who are embedded in the world who are acting out of which history evolves yes, you know yeah. uh, and so, i think that it's right, a complex it, argument for people like that to understand i mean i myself was like at first i'm like well in a way this is kind of like just what they're saying you know they want to look at things at a systemic level and that everything is bad because but i do at, like uh, understand your argument which is that no we actually need to look deeper like if we we can both agree upon that premise but then when we look at the actual institutions and the people who are embedded in them like then like it actually i mean i wouldn't necessarily call it conspiracist in like that it has any kind right. of like ideological commitment to any given thing being the result of a conspiracy more than having another uh, explanation i mean i don't know conspiracies are a very very common feature of politics and you right and i business. agree with what i think what i understand you to be saying which is that politics in general like you know is the inner like the interaction of human beings in the public sphere what i understand your argument to be is that like the like systemic organization of the institutions of our society like the way that they work like uh, corporations universities the different branches of government like the way that the uh, the military industrial complex the way that they uh, interact like within themselves and with each other like encourages these type of things so if we're looking at things in a systemic way our conclusion shouldn't be that oh there's no conspiracies because it's all systems but rather that the organization of the system actually encourages and facilitates the active right the, the conspiracy is the regulatory phenomenon by which the system coheres itself over time right if the conspiracy didn't exist i mean that this is you know just in, in in one sense but like if the conspiracy didn't exist then the system would not have the same level of capacity to make its itself continue to exist over time and exactly because it, it didn't drop out of the sky one day people built it like people built it right. over time like it was a great and kind of construction to process sustain it yes to sustain um, it right and it's like conspiracy is part of that and we talk about like if you have like say a, a you know a marxist conception of the state which is you know that the state is the body you know that mediates class struggle uh in the favor of the the dominant classes and so you know there's all this whole Marxist state theory and whatnot. But part of the reason that it is able to serve that function is because judges get bribed and senators yeah. get bribed yeah. or they get blackmailed. Right. Yeah. And like these things are ubiquitous. Like as you guys have seen from the history of the great American fortunes, like bribery, fraud and blackmail are ubiquitous throughout all of American history in business and politics. Like it's just, 100%. it is everywhere. And, and it's, you have to look at these things as, not epiphenomenal of the system, not just like incidental things that happen because like people like to do crimes, but they are constitutive of, of the system. They are part of the regulatory phenomenon, which makes the system what it is and gives it the particular set of dynamics that are controlled and controllable. 
Absolutely. Yes. That's Absolutely. like part of my compunction with the idea of parapolitics, where like it's not really like it's a para discourse of politics, as we've said, yeah. but it's not really para or beside ordinary politics. In fact, it's quite nope. like we're just talking about politics to politics. Yeah, yeah like that's and, literally we're talking about right. real political economy. In a way, right. like an like a, an ontological like conception of conspiracy, like or in in like the sense of like breathing together, like co-breathing, like the mm -hmm. way that like we simply like share air and respirate, like as part of the sort of processes or the life-sustaining processes of one, you know, uh, interlinked system is almost more descriptive of like the way that the type of politics or the politics that is, is being yeah. described. Because to breathe uh, together, so, yeah. you got to be in the same room with each other making yeah. deals. Or you know in fact, I mean? <laughs> like it can be seen as like a an organism of sorts, you know, that is breathing through like the operations of like multiple people. It's like you continue, like if you got, you got to keep breathing or die. And it's a continual, a continually sustaining sort of uh, breathing uh, through the actions of multiple agents in sync, but anyway, yeah, yeah, intertwining yeah. their own personal fates.
So let me uh, just read a, another section from the cybernetic brain, which has quotes from Ashby's journal that I think is, is very relevant here. And it gives, I think, a really good view of this, like what does control mean from a systemic sense and, and how to think about that in a, in a parapolitical context. So uh, this is, is Pickering speaking. I've been quoting uh, Ashby's notes on DAMS. DAMS is just like a more advanced version of his homeostat. It stands for dispersive and multi-stable system, psychiatry and warfare. So I've been quoting from Ashby's notes on DAMS, psychiatry and warfare from early September, 1951. And right in the middle of them is an entry dated 12 September, which begins on arranging a society. Quote, uh, here's an objection raised by Mrs. Bassett, which will, Mrs. Bassett, I think was one of his colleagues at the Burden. Uh, which will probably be raised by others. May it not happen, for instance, that the planner will assume that full mobility of labor is available when, in fact, people don't always like moving. They may have friends in the district. They may uh, like the countryside. They may have been born or bred there. Uh, they may dislike change. What is to stop the planner riding roughshod through these uneconomic but very important feelings? The answer, of course, is that one sees to it that feedback loops pass through the people so that they are fully able to feel their conditions and express opinions and make actions on them. One of the most important class of, quote, essential variables in such a society would be those that measure the comfort of the individual. It is obvious that the original objection was largely due to a belief that the planner must understand every detail of what he plans, and that therefore the plan must be as finite must be as finite as the intelligence of the planner. This, of course, is not so. Using the pr principles of the multi-table system, it should be possible to develop, though not to understand, a plan that is far superior to anything that any individual can devise. Coupled with this is the new possibility that it can be self-correcting. Summary, society. Now Pickering commenting on this again. Here we see the usual emphasis on performativity as prior to representation. Even in planning, quote, though not to understand, and temporal emergence, uh, but expressed now in a much more socially symmetric idiom than Ashby's remarks on warfare and psychiatry. Now planners do not dictate to the planned how their lives will develop, Instead, planners and planned are envisaged, is envisaged as more or less equivalent parts of a single multi-stable system, entangled with one another in feedback loops from which transformations of the plan continually emerge. The image is the same as the vision of evolutionary design that Ashby articulated in relation to dams, transferred from the world of machines to that of people. Now, social designs and plans are to be understood not as given from the start and imposed on their objects, but as growing in the thick of things. So like that, that part in particular, I think is so typifying of, I think what is often this like differing perspective or worldview that like quote unquote conspiracy theorists like tend to have when, when talking with people who are, you know, more normy and skeptical of whatever conspiracy right is like I, I think that often the, you know right people think that like oh it's impossible for there to be all these conspiracies because no one could have planned for all these contingencies which of course is not what happened instead yeah. they have designed a system that is responsive to contingencies and is redundant and recursive and can continually monitor the course by which it's going and through steersmanship guide mm -hmm. the ship 
that is society to its desired location, right? And I think yeah. one of the things that really got me hooked on this podcast was in the discussion of the, the satanic panic in, I guess it's the Aquino episodes early on, you know, you guys talk about how like both sides of that satanic panic mm. were sort of propped up and astroturfed. Really, they were ultimately like aspect, different aspects of like the same Iran-Contra, like World Anti-Communist League, like yeah. network. Yeah. Right. And so what what happened is like they, they were able to control the entire narrative around whatever space it was that they wanted by setting up this like dyadic opposition, right? This like artificial dialectic, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. then put put like put a natural set of bounds and a orientation and direction on what the discourse around these issues would be and people had to choose and pick sides and so it's like they're able to control then like planners are able to control how you know discourse about around a particular thing will play out by setting up the dynamics of the system within which that discourse is going to happen right and like putting Michael Aquino dressed up as a vampire on Oprah yeah. is like part of how you set up those dynamics is that you you are creating this dyadic structure that is going to have its own level of meta stability and will be able to reproduce itself over time, which you can then feed in and out your various, you know, controlled assets to, you know, like John DeCamp yeah. or, or whoever yeah. to like to influence it. But like the big actual control feature, right, as Stafford Beer would say, the regulatory phenomenon here mm-hmm. is like the dialectical exchange between fundamental Christian, fundamentalist Christians and Satanists, yeah. which like itself is this like false dichotomy that are just like two aspects of the international fascism put against right each other in order to like draw everybody's yeah. attention towards this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the meantime, it's like you at, you lump all these things on one side, one thing on the other side, because I guess we have been conditioned so much, just like the little circuits and like the mechanical tortoises to have like an A-B response to everything. So it's like, you know, Democrat, Republican, Trump, Clinton or Trump, Biden, and then like Michael Aquino and like heavy metal bands <laughs> or like Pat Robertson, like your only two options that you can have right. instead of. Yeah, like instead of developing any other kind of critique and then people get kind of shuttled into like these two, one of these two camps, the discourse is sort of patrolled. I mean, I think you see it with a lot of other cases. I think with the Epstein case, it's a fascinating, you know, uh, instance of like mm-hmm. cybernetic management of that whole scandal because, you know, almost it almost feels like cybernetically by design that in 2016, you had two presidential candidates that were both highly polarizing who both had like close very suspicious connections to Jeffrey Epstein. And so like for one side, they'd want to downplay all the Trump Epstein stuff, but they go all on Hillary and Pizzagate. And then the other side is like all about, you know, Trump and Epstein hanging out. But if you bring up all the Democrats that went to the Island then they're like, Oh, shut up, you know? And it just kind of, and then also look, look at literally every single election since Reagan has been two different people who are part of the Contra network put up against each other. Bush versus, uh, versus Clinton. Uh, yep, yep. I don't know about who is the guy in '96. I don't. I don't know about his specific relation, but but Al Gore uh, was part of that, and then obviously Bush, 
And then John uh, Kerry, Skull and John Bones Kerry covered up the BCCI I was just thinking about the fact they were both Skull and Bones because they were like, it's weird how some people were even more like, it seems like they're going to be more similar than than that. Like the, you know, it's right. not just that. Like well, they're Tim all... Russer did ask both yeah. Kerry and Bush about it and then mysteriously die of a heart attack not long after. <laughs> oh, so. right. He sure yeah. did. He sure did. Um, yeah. And then Obama, least, like life, lifelong CIA. Lifelong who, CIA guy versus God. like John McCain, uh, you know, um, fighter pilot uh vietnamese yeah. prisoner of war Son who of like admiral involved Henry in the keating Kissel. five scandals so kind of involved in like savings and loans iran contra savings and loans that whole and and that also obviously has connections to epstein too because epstein was with um with tower financial and that was all kind of wrapped uh, in oh, with that as well right yeah oh i forgot yeah. john mccain was connected to tower financial yeah so you know there's there's so much there right and you can you can see that basically every election since then has been and you know from the more conspiracy minded standpoint it's just like you look insane being like no like the only people you can vote for are like controlled opposition you know you, you don't vote for yeah. any of these you know you're, you're bound but like from a cybernetic regulatory perspective it's like well if you if you wanted to control political systems like how would you do it well you you set up these dynamics by which the only outcomes are ones that out that you're comfortable with yeah. Um, and you only have to control so, enough of like the inputs that then the output is going to be like limited within a certain range by all those inputs. So right. it's like through the infiltration, which kind of happened over decades and also just like the fact that these are private for profit corporations that are socially connected to people in political power, et cetera, et cetera. You know, things like the New York Times, or the Washington Post, like these people don't exist in a silo from like the federal government or other powerful people. And, mm -hmm. you know, then you add like the machinations of the intelligence agencies and just the overall national security state and kind of like seeding. You know, I've said before, like, you know, back during Operation Mockingbird, you know, in the 50s and 60s, like they used to kind of directly pay journalists to like spew CIA nonsense. And now I'm sure they <laughs> still do that. I'm sure the CIA has people all up in the media, but it's almost like they don't even need to, they A, don't even need to hide it if there is a CIA person like working there. Right. Because everyone's so like naive <laughs> yes. that they're just like, oh, he's just a patriot who's like a national security <laughs> expert. And yeah. or they don't even have to tell people like do this positive story about the CIA or you'll get fired because they've, they've institutionalized that and normalized it to such a degree that it's almost like it, you know you sort of pick up on that vibe very quickly or realize like your career is not going to go very far if like you attack the yeah. cia like you're not going to have source right. sources won't talk to you like your editor's going to hate you etc cetera, etc cetera. so you kind of and it kind of weeds out people who might object to that so they end up right. just not working for like washington post or new york times and the people that do are the ones that are like a little more easily either psyoped or seduced to like to do that and so they might think what do you mean i'm a cia propagandist i'm just a hard-working new york times journalist right. and stuff but I it's have like, no idea they have no idea and so in a way it kind of it abstracts the culpability and even like the the sort of the agency of like the the mysterious hand you know the invisible hand that's moving all of this is like i think sometimes it's acute there's like real actors that go out there and get people to push certain things. But other times it, it seems partially automated at this point, like right. cybernetically to produce certain types of results, which gets back to the idea of like the, you know, the definition of a system is like what it does. 
And yeah. if it spews out NATO propaganda and like Slava Ukraini and like we love Bandera <laughs> and, you know, fucking trust Larry Summers who went to Epstein's Island 500 times, vote for JB Big Boy for president. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like yeah, not yeah. all these things have to be like somebody at Langley's like sending out memos like, all right, say this. But it's like, right. it's, it's self-generating. It self-perpetuates. Yeah. And yeah, that, we're, like, that's we're lost the, the core and, of the idea. So, you know, I, I think what I see we're getting uh, pretty late and mm-hmm. there's really only like half of what I have had thought of in terms of talking hey, about. We, we actually could do another one of these to be perfectly yeah, we, honest. We haven't, like, we haven't gotten to really any of like the contemporary stuff, which is, you know, we talked about at the beginning that like cybernetics kind of disappeared, but you see cybernetic ideas everywhere now. And in fact, one of the most popular theories in cognitive science and neuroscience these days, it's also incredibly controversial, is very clearly descended from these cybernetic ideas. But interestingly, if you like the, the people who actually developed this theory would not tell you that if you asked them where they developed it from, because hmm. the, they actually got most of the tools and machinery and ideas for this theory from elsewhere, from information theory, from machine learning, from complex systems theory. What is this? Uh, like this thing theory is called. called yeah, so there's a bunch of sort of different names. In, in the most general sense, I'd call it predictive processing. It's a theory about how the brain works. In its most maximal sense, it's called the free energy principle. Although also they've they've recently rebranded it uh, to call it Bayesian mechanics um, or Bayesian dynamics. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's essentially in, as I said, this most maximal form in, in the, what they're now calling Bayesian mechanics, uh, essentially a integrated theory of how multi-scale systems, uh, of what they are, how they cohere themselves over time, how different scales of the system relate to each other. It's a theory that came out of computational neuroscience, but it's now getting applied uh, in sociology and psychology and all of these areas. So, you know, I think that it's worth exploring those ideas there these also are starting to get picked up and given institutional support by um web 3.0 blockchain companies Uh. um and so where you've got this new science of multi-scale integrated systems it has had institutional support it developed well within established institutions and, and and fields but is now the the part of the business world that is most quickly glomming onto these things are companies that build supply chain logistics for uh, like blockchain-based supply chain logistics for like Web 3.0 and things like that. Oh, so I think that this very interestingly gives us space to talk about Web 3.0 and about like the future cybernetic society and a little more about the sort of history of science and it, to explore the thesis, I guess, to some extent that we put forward at the beginning that like was cybernetics deconstructed as a, as part of the long counter revolution of the 20th century. Stripped for um, parts. Yeah. And used for the so, machine. There's a lot. There's a lot to talk about still. We also never got to von Forrester and second order cybernetics, and and it, that I think parlays well into the free energy principle, Bayesian dynamics stuff, because those really are second order cybernetics, right? If you're looking at embedded multi-scale systems of systems, mm-hmm. there you have to understand the active agent as 
a system itself, which is embedded within a larger system. And really, that's kind of the, the, the core of Von Forrester's second order cybernetics. So, yeah, I don't know if you maybe it makes sense to look to to um, continue again at some point and, and make a second part. Yeah, yeah, because I think there's still like a few categories yeah. of things that we didn't get to discuss. Yeah, like Von Forrester, yeah, we, who was, with, right. uh, worked for the Nazis during World War II, even though he was a like, quarter <laughs> yeah. Jewish, and um, also worked for the, I believe he worked for the a- Axel Wenner-Gren like, Anthropological Institute. Well, uh, really? Oh, yeah, 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 that oh was a big God, thing. Oh, my God, I didn't Because <laughs> we really. definitely want to dig into that a little bit. There are actually a couple well, Axel Wenner-Gren hits in, in uh, all incredible. the research for this, but that was, I think he was the head of it actually for like two years. Oh um, my! Oh my God! I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I Axel Benner Gren. We just did a whole episode on him in the Bahamas, and like, yeah, God, that guy is popping up everywhere lately. I mean, just like mm. the building the Disneyland monorail, being a Nazi, questing for the Grail of a unified German Europe, yeah. like just <laughs> so Christ. fucking sketchy. And yeah, of course, yeah. some Nazis are going to pop up and all this shit. Um, oh, sorry, ex-Nazis. Um, right, no, no. And of course, they're not Nazis. Yeah, yeah. no, never were. Just, just a scientist. Um, just, yeah. just a serious uh, scientist. But yeah, they were doing some... Von Forrester was doing some stuff in Illinois that was kind of interesting. And he brought Ashby over, right? Like he hired Ashby. Yeah, yes. Um, yeah, ex- exactly. And um, yeah, that was at the University of Illinois... Uh, Urbana-Champagne. Yes, uh, that's campus. right. Yeah, and yeah. Von Forrester directed the biological computing <laughs> lab there. Which that's a, there's a whole. Stafford Beer did some of this too with like biological computing, where they they literally try to get actual biological systems to do computation for them. So like, like in a pond, they had one like they wanted like where they microbes. had like a pond out back at the lab. And <laughs> I, yeah, I haven't spent enough time reading about this about in terms of like how it worked and whatnot. But I mean that I thought was very fascinating in his own interesting sort of cybernetic ontological theater. But uh, I didn't spend too much time on that. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, a fair amount of stuff to, to wrap up if you wanted to, to do a uh, continuation. Yeah, yeah, yeah I good. think, I mean, this okay. is such a rich topic. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, that's what happened when it, I started yeah, it really researching can never this. Is like I'm they surprised coming like back. I- I was surprised how li- a few of these people I had heard of because, like, of how... Like yeah, they're kind of like plugged into. The key and everywhere. I also I def yeah. I, I definitely want to spend some time if we do a part two talking about Gregory Bateson and R. D. Lang and their yeah. kind of anti psychiatry kind of uh, you know movement because they end up getting sucked up into this whole sixties whirlwind yes. and kind of using Bateson, like these cybernetic yeah. ideas in kind of a arguably like very sus ways. Um, I mean, Gregory yeah. Bateson was married to Margaret Mead, who was like, they were right. both instrumental in the Macy conferences. And I think it was, uh, yeah, Gregory Bateson was working, got invited to work at that Palo Alto, like mental health institute where, you know, Allen Ginsberg, Robert Hunter, Jerry Garcia, Ken like Kesey, all, all of the leading lights of the sixties got dosed at this clinic in Palo Alto. And he was working there for a while. And yeah, just kind of, uh, the, like in his kind of applying maybe like cybernetic ideas to like psychology, you know, psychiatry or anti psychiatry in the sixties, which of course ended up with a bunch of people like doing the synodon game and like fucking starting right. communes and like psyoping each other and like getting MK'd. But yeah, there's a lot, I think there's a, a lot of rich veins there and uh, RD Lang yeah, as and well. I didn't know as much about. 
No, I didn't know much about him either. I mean, I think that there is a lot there, and that also will dovetail well with like the Carl Friston stuff because Friston is a psychiatrist by training, but I mean, in practice, he's pretty, you know, a computational neuroscientist. And I, I think that that will kind of dovetail well with those things. I will sort of re up in the Discord channel the particular things that I think are, are, Useful okay, yeah, for that'll be cool. Then, that'll give me a little more time good. too. Because well, I have, I'm also kind of glad of this because I I discovered the Von Forrester stuff so late, and there's so much to dig into there. Besides reading the book, like which is incredibly esoteric, it's like there's a lot to dig in with his background and like it, yeah, right in the very yeah. beginning of the book, he says he's talking about like beginnings, blah blah blah, Genesis. and uh, yeah, yeah, I was just like fuck this, like I'm not gonna read yeah, like this like, can... weird like intellectual masturbation that ultimately concludes like with, or I could have no introduction at all, which is what I'm gonna do, and that like, <laughs> right. it was so, yeah, it, and then I mean, like finally yeah, you get was... to actually yeah, he had some interesting thoughts, but some of his things were just I thought like dumb like when he was like time exists you know if you look at a clock but if you're late time doesn't exist and it's like if you get to show up for something like if yeah. you're at the time of an event there is no time and it's like i don't know if that's i don't think true. you're just doing yeah. that, that it was uh, it him or ashby that confessed to becoming a time worshiper uh, that was ashby, that was ashby. Oh, ashby. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah but uh, i did I yeah, yeah stop worshiping saturn like right <laughs> Yeah, I mean, time might be uh, slightly better than that. But so he, he, said, that, he yeah. says I mean, in the beginning, right? Everything is here and now. That's a magic saying for me. Magic saying that's quite interesting, which I learned from my grandmother, Marie Lang, who was like an incredibly prominent theosophist. Oh, yeah, so that's like, right. Yeah, it, we didn't he calls it a that. magic saying. And, and like the cover of the book is an Ouroboros. <laughs> um, and, and the first chapter, right, is about beginnings. And his whole thing is that like, every beginning is an end and like, that's all that there ever yeah. could be. And blah, blah, you know, so there's a lot, you know, I think you're right to kind of call it intellectual masturbation. Like it, the book was a conversation yeah, over seven more, days. Right. I've been interested to read some more of his writing. Cause they seem to be referring yeah. to a lot of stuff that I was like, what is this? Cause I've had never heard of him before. Right. Um, right. And, I, and I, I confess. The, yeah. The, the cybernetic brain book doesn't have a lot on him. Might be, I'll, mm. I'll do a little searching through the other one, the Thomas Red book, and see how much it mentions in him. There might be there might be some stuff in there. I put the LibGen link to that Thomas Red book in the Discord summers. Oh, cool! cool. Somewhere if you want to look at it. But I think mostly it'll just be like, you know, open it up and search and say, okay, is there anything related to this in here? You know, that might definitely. Be yeah. Oh, um, and just to be clear, yes, he was president of the Vennergren Foundation from 1963 to 1965. Heinz von yeah incredible yeah, yeah. Um, so cool. so yeah there's there's definitely a lot of uh fruitful stuff here still so this Absolutely. was a ton of fun though uh, this is so, a good ride yeah, yeah. thanks for yeah. having me on and um yeah we'll, we'll talk next week or whatever sure. the, yeah, the serious good. scientists right. are triggered but i do i will say now i'm i'll i'll send some of the stuff about about um this first in free energy principle too it's like i i, I think um maxwell ramstead's dissertation who is uh, first and student is actually like very very readable especially after having just had this conversation mm -hmm. you guys are going to be able to see how all of these ideas and thoughts trace back to cybernetics reading through it so I'll, I'll link that one again like that that in terms that's like the only thing that would i, I be be worth i would say reading from like the modern stuff because uh, the papers and stuff are like they're very fucking dense I, um, I, I experienced so, that. Uh, yes, <laughs> I yeah, tried I know, reading yeah, some of the yeah. white papers. And I'm like, uh, like white what? Do like, you, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the cybernetic brain, you're right. It's very readable for like a lay, a lay reader. And um, yeah, I think because it's written as like a history, it gives you all this context that you wouldn't under. And and it's also like it's written, I guess, in sort of like first person. It's just like presenting it to you. It's definitely very readable. His uh, enthusiasm shines through. Uh, Andrew Pickering. Yeah, 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 he's fascinated by it, and uh, rightfully so, I guess. Even though I probably think it's more sus than he does, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, right. I mean, he doesn't doesn't have the parapolitical lens, or even like a Marxist lens. I I suspect. Um, No, but it doesn't. He doesn't do. I don't think he does too much damage on the front of kind of like not being, you know, noited or Marxist enough. Like, right? You know, like these guys were amazing, and I love them, and like their thing. (laughs) Like, I mean, I think him focusing on it being like kind of a renegade ontology and like a kind of a nomad science that the big, like serious, like normal scientists, you know, uh, basically kind of like stripped for parts and then like right. shit canned like the meta discipline that it maybe was like forming into, which you could say about so many things. You could even say it about Marxism or Maoism, right. which we've referenced before, you know, like, uh, you know, it's like MIT people going over to China to like, see like, how are they like organizing the mass line and then like turning that into like management principles for running Silicon Valley startups. Right. Well, shit. is it the mass line is like, is feedback, an interestingly right? cybernetic idea. Well, right? yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Feedback. And I mean, even dialectics, like in my admittedly like slightly vulgar kind of conception of it, or just the way I commonly think about it on like a day to day basis, is like it's inherently like it's dynamic and inherently kind of cybernetic. Like you know, like right. you grow up, you're influenced dialectically by your environment, like you're influenced dialectically by other people, like by the institutions you interact with, by the technology you use. Like all of these things are like a back and forth reaction you know they're not just one input going into something else or we're not just floating around like you know gods like completely unconnected to everything else you know around like gods Uh, it's (laughs) awesome (laughs) right so Uh, so i'll say just as like a little preview basically i mean like that the core idea of like the free energy principle mm -hmm. and i i I put that paper in there somewhere they've got ramstead has this paper from 2016 where the title is like uh answering schrodinger's question uh, where schrodinger's question is like what is life and they basically like they think that they have an answer to the classic philosophical question of like what does it mean to be a thing that exists they expressly (laughs) say it's like we've we have developed the answer to this yeah. Well, it starts right, out so, when you have a so, sus cat and a sus box, and then blah blah yeah, blah, double yeah. slit. Uh, yeah, that's why the moon's not there. So, so, it. and they've got a whole mathematical formalism for that, and that's the core of the sort of mathematical tools that are underlying this um, theory, which has, like I said, it's gotten, it's become, it's got a lot of, it's very controversial within science. Although there's big whole kind of schools developing of of people who are studying it and are really committed to it but it gets a lot of pushback too but the places where it's getting more uptake and acceptance is like silicon valley and people interested in machine learning and ai and robotics Mm -hmm. so and and there's also some connection there to what we talked about earlier about um performative robotics and gray walters tortoises and stuff Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'll I'll send some some stuff in the Discord. You can poke through. Word sounds good. Sounds yeah. very good. All right, all right, Later, Jay. Thank you for going on this ride with us. I think yeah, we will pick it up pick it up shortly. But until that time, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace. Later. 
We have seen the singing wind We have heard the sun Singing 